Southern Skies. Online Media. and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 42 of the program that looks at life, the universe and everything aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Fisher, and with me as always, a man who always knows where his tail is, it's Grant McHeron. G'day, mate. Hey, all you hoopy fruits. How are you going out there on the sub-ether wave bands? Don't forget, folks, the secret is to bang the rocks together, guys. Spot the theme, folks. I wonder uh, what the significance of 42 might be. I think David Vanderhoof will figure this one out within milliseconds. Yes, him and Anthony Simmons. Yeah, before or after the third pan-galactic gargle blaster. You know, I said to Anthony Simmons once I considered myself an expert on uh, on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, oh, which, yeah. boy, was that a mistake. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, did he put you in your place? And boy, I'm still smarting from it. It was about three months ago. Oh, I look forward to giving it a go. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> I figure I'll last three rounds before I'm beaten into submission. <laughs> Well, folks, it's been a while since we've done a program in this format, so uh, we're going to return to the news and comment. Uh, we've got uh, quite a bit of news to cover this week, Grant. Also, uh, Anthony Simmons, the infrequent flyer, is uh, returning with another view from the lounge. And uh, also, we're going to have a bit of a chat with uh, one of our uh, listeners, Damien Rose, who we've spoken about before. Uh, he's continuing with his commercial pilot training, Grant, and uh, doing really well at it. Yeah, hats off to Damien. That's pretty serious stuff. And uh, this is the gentleman who sold his house to fund his training. So kudos to him for doing it and major props to his wife for allowing it to happen. Absolutely. She's a fine woman, Grant. Yeah, they're few and far between who allow a person to go off and play with aviation, I tell you. Yeah, or do podcasts, you know. Yeah, well, that too, yes, yeah. our, our long-suffering partners. And we've got a real treat too. Uh, Damien's also sent us in some more cockpit audio, and uh, we'll save that one up for right at the end of the show. In fact, uh, we'll do that in place of the blooper reel this week. So, uh, Grant, uh, you know, you can uh, you, know, you no need to worry so much in this episode. Oh, so I can relax, huh? Woohoo! Meanwhile, I'm going to have another beer. (laughs) Yeah, okay, Steve. Well, let's uh, get back into the serious side of things and do our news review. And to help us along today, we've got a very special guest. We've got Will Horton from Flight Global. Will, g'day. Welcome to the show. Hi, Grant. How are you? And, and Steve? Yeah, we're good. Thanks, mate. Welcome to the show and thanks for coming on with us. And uh, before we kick it off, uh, seeing as that's obviously not a Melbourne accent that you're talking to us with, how about uh, telling us a bit about yourself and uh, how you came to be uh, working down here in the Australian uh, aviation journalism game? Sure. Yep. It's not an Australian accent. I'm originally from New York City, born and raised there. And a number of years ago, when I was thinking about my plans for university, I decided I really wanted a different experience. Um, I thought university was not just what you learn, but where you learn the environment and the people you were with. Uh, so to make a long story short, I ended up in Australia, in Melbourne, uh, the lovely rainy city of Melbourne. And uh, before I... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yep. And before I got to uh, Australia, I thought I contacted the editor of Airliners Magazine. Uh, I had always loved aviation. I also liked to write and thought maybe I could merge the two together and I obviously thought highly of myself to uh, email the editor and say, oh, I'm going to be in Australia for the next few years. Can I contribute to your magazine? Because Airliners bills itself as the world's airline magazine. 
writing about airlines from all over the world, but Asia and Australia and the Pacific region was a bit of a blank spot for them. So I thought being here, I could add a lot to them. And uh, surprisingly, they said, yes, give it a go. So I first wrote about Tiger Airways Australia. That was a few months after they launched their base here, and uh, it went well. And ever since then, uh, things have taken off, we might say. I've written about a number of airlines in the region as well as in Asia, and went to a conference about a year and a half ago and met someone from Flight Global and started to get to know them and was offered an internship. And after the internship, uh, which was in Washington, by the way, I stayed on contributing both editorial news from Australia Pacific and also working on the web. Of course, cool. we also know someone else who's an intern uh, for that magazine at the moment. I think his name's also Webb. Yes, Dan Webb, a great guy. Uh, actually, I just spoke to him for the first time a few minutes ago. We've been emailing quite a bit and having all sorts of random Gmail chats at on hours when, <laughs> when it's neither a working hour nor a sleeping hour for either of us. Great guy, an absolute airplane geek and complete nerd, no doubt. Absolutely. And the future owner of uh, Southwest Airlines, we're predicting. <laughs> oh, don't tell him we said that. <laughs> or, okay. Or, Make sure or he doesn't listen made, to this. Yeah, no, he, doesn't, perhaps, he never listens, he never to, listens us. to us. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, I met you, Will, about a year ago at the uh, Asia Pacific uh, Outlook Aviation Outlook Summit up in Sydney uh, right. when Shashank from Simpler Flying and I put on the little tweet up. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were there, so you were down for the meeting covering the Australia-Pacific area through that uh, conference. And I understand you've been in Sydney recently for the one this year. Yep, and I think last year's conference uh, was a bit slow just because of the global financial crisis. Uh, airlines really weren't putting themselves out there making too many big changes other than cutting costs and making sure that they would be safe. But this year, I think we saw a lot more innovation. And I think a lot of the topics uh, we have on the agenda to discuss today came out of that conference. Yeah, yeah. Some of them, some of them have been percolating. Others came uh, were suddenly new ones. Uh, there are a couple of topics we've got on our list that show. Uh, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> Just give us a bit of an idea, Will, of, uh, of that conference. Do they have a lot of the industry heavyweights there? What, what is the, uh, the general idea of that conference? Sure. So it's a three-day conference, and the first two days are generally the big heavy days. We had Alan Joyce, uh, Bruce Buchanan from Jetstar, uh, Alan Joyce, obviously, of Qantas, uh, Liz Savage from Virgin Blue, as well as a number of representatives from other airlines and other companies in the industry. And altogether, there are probably about a few hundred delegates representing all aspects of the industry. Liz Savage, is she their new PR person? No, Liz Savage uh, is their new commercial director. Okay, because I know there was this since Borghetti came in, there's been a few changes and things like that. So I was just wondering where Liz stood. Yes, so- there have been a number of PR changes, I think, for. Uh, a few different reasons, but yes, there have been those changes. And, yep. and what, what would you think, uh, Will, was the general vibe amongst the airline industry? I mean, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk around the general news media that, uh, you know, the world is coming out of the uh, the recession or such as it was here in Australia. I mean, it, it really didn't hit us that hard in global, by comparison to global terms, I believe. Uh, Absolutely not. How do yeah. they, uh, how's, how, are, how are they sort of looking? I think unanimous picture on everyone's mind is that this is the place to be. Australia, Pacific Asia is the place to be, the region to be. Lots of growth, lots of potential. Uh, The industry as it is today is probably really just in its infancy compared to what it will be 
over the next few decades. So people here are in a very good position for business. Yeah, both Boeing and Airbus have been um, showing that uh, Asia Pacific is going to be the boom area for new aircraft and things like that. I, I think a large part of that may also be they're saying, hey, look, China and India are going to go nuts. They're going to need more aircraft and so on. But uh, just on an aside, I'm kind of interested to see how China goes with uh, their own internal aviation supplying of airliners like the Comac and so on. Uh, If China turns around and says to all its airlines, you must buy internally, then that's going to kind of make things hard for Boeing and Airbus and they'll miss out on a lot of that boom area, won't they? They will. And certainly we saw that uh, last month in Russia with Putin telling Aeroflot that he thought they should be uh, buying more Russian aircraft. So that's certainly a common theme that will be uh, that will be in the industry. But I think at the same time, I don't see a indigenous aircraft manufacturer like Comac able to meet the demand that China's airlines will have. But certainly Airbus and Boeing could very well lose some share. I don't think it'd be that much. I mean, even if that Chinese airline had turned out to be an outstanding product, I think there would be a general reluctance in the Western world to fly on anything, given the perception that really anything that comes out of China is a copy and and a substandard one at that. Yep, that would absolutely be a fear. And also, it's likely that not just uh, Chinese airlines buy the aircraft, but also airlines, say, from Southeast Asia that have economic ties to China would also be under influence to buy Chinese jets rather than jets from Airbus, Boeing, even Embraer, Bombardier. Yeah, we've also got the whole Indian aerospace taking off like Hindustani aerospace and so on, and Mahindra, who have been uh, investing heavily in aerospace industries here in Australia. They're not so much going for the uh, commercial jets and so on, they're going more at the regional level. Right. And that's certainly an opportunity that I think they see that they can more easily enter than a full-on 737, A320, or even something a bit smaller. Between Embraer and uh, Mitsubishi and the C-Series, you've got the low end sort of being covered, and you've got the seven bigger 737s, A320s upwards with Airbus and Boeing. Um, now you've got Comac and, as you mentioned before, the Sukhoi Superjet. So if there's a buy local there, that that is going to cause some uh, hassles for the big guys. But uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how this whole Asia-Pacific area pans out over the next uh, 10 years or so. Absolutely. And certainly just yesterday, we saw uh, Cathay Pacific order more 777s and Airbus A350 at WB. So that's uh, that's yep. just one order of many to come. A350s, that's interesting because the 777 has really become the airliner of choice. Would you agree? In this part of the world, there's, they're just everywhere now, which, you know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have seen the... So many of those around there, you know, most carriers would have favoured the 747 traditionally, but uh, the 777 really seems to be becoming far more prominent in our skies these days. I think it's not just the 777, but uh, specifically the 777-300ER, just the efficiency, the range. It really is almost a 747, slightly smaller capacity, but just much more efficiency. And with, I think, all the fuel issues that we've seen over the past 10 years, as you point out, Grant, uh, that really is why we're seeing so many 777s. The 777-300ER is a beautiful aircraft. Sure, it doesn't carry as many people as a 74, but um, a few of those let you go further. You don't have to stage as often, things like that. I mean, that that's the rumor floating around about V Australia being interested in the 300ER to be able to go Perth-London direct. Uh, that, yeah, I think that rumor has finally been sent to the graveyard, from what I hear. It does. It do, it hasn't really had much more traction these days, but uh, a big part of that is because they'd have to carry less paying passengers and or cargo to be able to carry the, enough fuel to get back. And I think the Australia in the next few years, and certainly uh, the very short term, they're not looking at long range aircraft like the triple seven three hundred ER, but rather looking at 
bringing in a new wide body that's more of a medium range, such as the 767 or more likely the A330 uh, to Correct. help them reach more into Asia where the 777-300ER is really just too much of an aircraft. The 777 is not good on the uh, routes to Fiji and Bali and things like that. But yeah, the, well, I, th- the... I think it should be observed that the Fiji route, from people I know at Viosley, they really don't consider the Fiji route a proper 777 route. It's really about <laughs> aircraft utilization. Yeah. Um, they had it sitting there. Yeah, it sits at Sydney Airport all day, uh, yeah. raking up those high parking fees that it's not just customers who are subjected to. Well, we, we, <laughs> we also hear from inside the industry that a lot of the uh, the flight crews uh, don't like doing that run because they don't get as many allowances. It doesn't pay them as well, and uh, we're led to believe that they often have trouble staffing those flights. That'd be interesting, yeah. certainly. Yeah. But certainly, yeah. uh, staying the 777-300ER to Phuket is just too much of an aircraft and <laughs> <laughs> From what I hear, even sending it to Japan or China, Hong Kong would also be too yeah. much. Whereas a seven six or a three thirty would really be, be yep. a good fit. Yeah, and the uh, the other good fit for the seven six or three thirty is, of course, on the uh, overloaded domestic routes between Melbourne and Sydney. You know, the the Eastern Corridor That's- and the Golden Triangle. Yeah, because Sydney is the Sydney's the killer here. It's it's slot limited. Unlike in the US, where the airlines just schedule more and more aircraft, and then wonder why no one can get off the ground because it's all congested. We've got this slot limitation that you know. May, I reckon that's going to get traction in the US. But that slot limitation means if you've got more passengers wanting to go there, we well, can't just throw more aircraft. Then you've got to upscale to a bigger aircraft at peak periods. And so, right now, VB doesn't have anything bigger than a nine hundred, which they're slowly starting to bring on. So, yeah, a 7.6 or an A330 would, would really bring them into par with Qantas in terms of lifting capacity at those peak periods. And it's not just even if they could bring in more flights if they want to. There's also the curfew, so that further yes. flights uh, just beyond the slot restrictions. Yeah, and we all saw that when Jetstar got slammed with a fine for busting curfew. Yes. Back to Cathay selecting the A350, I think the reason for them is they see the A350 as being able to exist on a higher level than the 777-300ER in terms of offering more efficiency and more seats, whereas continuing with the 7.8 might be a good A330-777-200 replacement. But uh, really, Cathay does need an aircraft that can seat many passengers and go far efficiently. It is interesting that they're going with the uh, A350-900. Um, I guess that they had to choose between the 787 or the A350-900, neither of which are really proving themselves at the moment. I know Cathay got burnt a couple of times being early on with a couple of newer models of aircraft. Interesting they've gone for it. I, I d- didn't see when their delivery times were. Is it early on or later in the in the period for those aircraft? The delivery dates are between 2016 and 2019 for the A350-900. They're not going to be the first ones to get it. No, so. absolutely not. I think Airbus is pegging the first delivery of the A350-900 uh, in 2013. So Cathay will have yeah. three good years to let all of the kinks be worked out. Yeah, I think that's a wise move. Yeah, interesting that they've gone for that. I mean, the whole the whole way things are shaping up in Asia, it's, it, you've got the long haul, you've got the dense, short haul, shorter haul. I mean, we're, we're seeing a lot of that with AirAsia and AirAsia X with a lot of the, what they're going on with their A330s and A320s. Well, yeah. I think it's I think it's no secret either that all of the mainline Australian carriers uh, are looking at Asia as their growth market. I mean, you see most of their marketing push and their you know they're they're putting out feelers for future uh, network growth all all seem to be in the Asia region. That's obviously where they see them making their profits in the decades to come. 
Absolutely. And that was uh, at the conference something Qantas CEO Alan Joyce touched on, that he thought China in particular uh, had great potential uh, in the future for Qantas, which is interesting because uh, currently Qantas just has one daily flight from Sydney to Shanghai and last year cut its flights between Melbourne and Shanghai and Sydney and Beijing. But one thing Alan Joyce did hint at was that 787 would enable Qantas to make unprofitable routes profitable specifically yeah. in regards to China. So perhaps that's an indication of where the first 787s for Qantas may go. Yeah, well, they're, they're wanting to put them in with Jetstar into Singapore, aren't they? Sure. So the first 787s for the Qantas group are going to Jetstar, but uh, the first 787s for Qantas uh, mainline perhaps could end up in, in going to China. But I think uh, we're replacing the 787s domestically is a bit more of a need perhaps in the eyes of some frequent flyers. Those 767s will be long in the tooth by the time the uh, 787s come online. The, well, they're uh, long in the tooth now. I was on one last week, and as I was putting my bag in the overhead bin, I managed to knock off an exit sign. <laughs> <laughs> so did that go in your bag as well? Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, a, that's a real knock It was very easy to snap back on, and uh, someone from maintenance was able to do that without, uh, without any delay to us. But I thought it was uh, rather ironic that an aviation journalist managed to do that en route to an aviation conference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thumbs up for that one. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the Qantas and Jetstar, the, uh, the, what seems to be an internal battle which, uh, between the mainline side of the business and, you know, and as Grant says uh, quite often, if it's new, it's JQ. I mean, uh, Jetstar, everything in the Qantas group these days seems to be about making Jetstar bigger and mainline smaller. Uh, we, you know, we, we've sort of been watching where, where Jetstar is looking at trying to find some regional Asian base as a, as a jumping off point for them to expand into the Middle East, perhaps, and, and, on, and uh, on into Europe in the future. Was there much talk about that at the conference? Well, I think they've actually settled on Singapore now. And the question now is when does all that really start coming to fruition and what will we see from that? Uh, from the conference regarding Jetstar and Qantas, it wasn't too much uh, specifically about, uh, as another saying of yours is, um, uh, Qantas is a uh, member of the Jetstar Airlines, <laughs> yeah. which is, I think, uh, equally as appropriate as saying, uh, if it's new, it's JQ. Although Qantas uh, last week did introduce the new domestic check-in, I forget yes. exactly what it calls it, check-in of the future or something, airport of the yeah, future. Yeah, over in Perth. Yep, over in Perth. And uh, that that was Qantas and not, and not Jetstar. Yes. But a big part of the reason for that, I think, is because it relies on you being a frequent flyer. Your frequent flyer card has a smart chip. Your luggage is tagged. And if you're a frequent flyer, you get all that. Uh, Jetstar hasn't really pushed the frequent flyer side yet, has it? Absolutely not. I think for them, it's a matter of cost. They don't see the benefit outweighing the cost of having that system rewarding passengers. Yep. Uh, so interestingly, that's been the position of AirAsia, although at the conference, Azran Osman Rani, who's the CEO of AirAsia X, which is quite similar to AirAsia, but is legally a separate company. He announced that AirAsia is actually looking to start a frequent flyer program because the way they see it, they will gain a significant amount of information that they can use for marketing and better targeting passengers. So even offering free flights, discount flights, 
that benefit will be exceeded by the value of having all that information about members in their frequent flyer program. That's the fun part about it is Air Asia is saying, hey, we want to have a frequent flyer program. And that's right about the same time that Crawford Ricks is going, frequent flyer programs are bad and all Australian corporations should follow the path of the Australian government and deny frequent flyer points to people flying on the, um, if you're with the government, you fly on the government's dime, no frequent flyer points. And he reckons everyone should do that and the corporate side of things because he says frequent flyer points are a barrier to competition. Oh, I disagree with that completely. Mate, I've got no argument. I'll just say this is what Rick's is saying. I mean, that, that, that is certainly what he's saying. I think, though, that if corporations attempted to implement that, they would find that many of their employees would be significantly less willing to travel. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the main part. If you're working for this company, you're being sent all around the place all the time. Well, I want the damn frequent flyer points is at least some benefit for being away and putting up with living out of a hotel in a suitcase. I think Crawford Ricks is starting to shape up to be our local Ryanair comparison. Uh, he hinted apparently in his, in that same speech that uh, Tiger could go the Ryanair way and they were very they were not adverse and kind of interested in standing seats and pay toilets and so on. Sounds like Tiger could very well be heading straight down the toilet, I mean, straight to um, the uh, Ryanair model. I think at this stage, it's a bit too early to really gauge how serious he is. My my plane is that it was really to get publicity. Two years ago, I had an interesting conversation with Tony Davis, who manages yes. all, all of Tiger. And I asked him, well, what, what about eliminating window, blade, window shades and having non-reclined seats. And his response was that he thought customers in this region, particularly in Asia, uh, would demand a higher level of service than their counterparts in, in Europe. So yep. I, I'll believe it the day I see it, standing seats and uh, pay-as-you-go-lose for Tiger. It was a Chinese airline that was the first to look for the um, standing room seats, but that's mostly to, to fly a lot of their very poor people around for family stuff at, uh, at the Chinese New Year. But yeah, I think I think the big thing that Crawford Ricks was taking out of all this was uh, the, the big play he's taken from Timothy O'Leary's playbook is uh, publicity at all costs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And let, let's face it, there is no government in this part of the world anywhere, Australia, New Zealand at least, that's going to certify standing seats. That's just not going to happen in my opinion. But they're still going to keep pushing that because it gets them headlines. I mean, here we are talking about it and I'm sure that the uh, the mainstream media is picking that up and you know and running with it as well and you yeah. know any publicity is good publicity isn't it when it comes right down to it it is and last year at that conference uh, Shelley Roberts was agitating that Tiger should be allowed to fly internationally and, and could fly to New Zealand we've heard absolutely nothing since then perhaps uh, the prospect of the decline market and then a tie-up between Air New Zealand and Virgin Blue is pushing that further out of their mind. But again, I think it is what gets them what gets them out in the news, gets them out in the news. Yeah, well, interesting that Shelley's no longer around. Supposedly a, a good, clean change of ownership, but uh, it seems that she was starting to make some comments that the kahunas at the top of the whole Tiger group may not have liked, such as get into New Zealand. Although Tiger has hooked up with uh, Thai, and you now have Thai Tiger setting up to do a lot of low-cost flying in in the uh, Thai region of Asia. Sure, we're looking to be based out of Bangkok and obviously yep. would be a competitor to AirAsia's Thai operation there. They're basically going to be a um, Tiger-branded aircraft. It's 51% owned by Thai so that it gets past the Thai national requirement of the uh, Thailand government. It's basically going to be exactly like Tiger here in Australia. It'll look just like Tiger in, in all parts of Asia, but be based out of Bangkok. On, on those the seats and the toilets and all that kind of stuff, and Boeing uh, are resisting that at all costs because they know what it would do to their image as well and also to the resale 
whole value of the aircraft if you take out plumbing or, or at least take out toilets they've got to go back in if you sell it to someone else and and as Steve was saying getting it certified there's a certain um, crashworthiness requirement and the ability to survive a certain level of, of g-force not prolonged but instant g-force that you get when you hit the ground and those standing seats I can't see how they'd ever make that happen no they'd have to you'd have to have a brace some sort of brace apparatus around your head for instance yeah, I think you guys got absolutely right. I think the certification issue uh, is far greater than customer perception, aircraft manufacturer willingness. Certification is the key part where I think we won't be seeing these same seats anytime soon. But if, if a regulatory body does clear the seats, then it'll be interesting to see how customers, passengers, airlines, and even the manufacturers begin to respond. Actually, it wouldn't surprise me to find Comac releasing an interior seating version of their um, their aircraft with seats and standing seats that doesn't get certified by, it never flies anywhere other than China, and China provides special dispensation for it. Because in the words of a uh, China Airways flight attendant, a friend of mine was flying with them inside China one time, and he said, hey, I noticed you didn't do a safety briefing. She looked at him and said, eh, we crash, you die. <laughs> I, I imagine that must be in violation of some safety rules regulation in China. I find it hard to believe they can get away without a safety briefing. In China, it's amazing what you can get away with. It's it's like the good old days in flying Aeroflot in Russia, where it's you know at one point they were flying two aircraft. One was a spare, so if anything went wrong, the spare was there. With two aircraft would fly the same route, one with the passengers, one empty. China doesn't have to go through all the regulatory approvals or anything. If someone decides that Comac is allowed to produce a standing room only set of seats for use on aircraft only within China to alleviate the problem for getting more Chinese to fly around China, it'll happen. And it doesn't have to go through FAA, CASA or JAA or anyone else. It's only in China. Bang, stamp, dispensation. There you go, guys. Standing room only. That's for our people and we know the risk and off they go. Well, no, Another factor in China too is that uh, the Chinese government is investing heavily and I mean really heavily, in high-speed rail. That'll be a much more efficient mass transit option for the Chinese in their high-density populated areas, and there'd be a lot of them over there, I'd have to guess. So, you know, I I don't know that there's even going to really be a need to have aircraft configured this way. It'll be interesting to see how that one pans out, hey? Mm. Snow, when are you guys booking your tickets to China? (laughs) (laughs) I'll do it for a ride on the train. I think after that comment, I may not be allowed in. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, let's uh, turn our attention to a uh, to another uh, Asian carrier that's operating in our skies here, and that's AirAsia X, guys. Uh, they're looking at some uh, trans-Tasman flights. Do we think that'll ever uh, get off the ground? I think what AirAsia is saying right now is that if the Air New Zealand and Virgin Blue tie-up goes ahead and they cut flights, then they would be looking to introduce flights. I'm going to add in a few commentaries about that first Air New Zealand and Virgin Blue are very insistent that they're actually not going to be cutting flights. And the second thing to know is uh, AirAsiaX has also been talking about entering the trans-Tasman market for quite some time. And I think it was only in the past few weeks that there was sort of this resurgence of news. And I think it was just because of the comments about the Air New Zealand and Virgin Blue tie-up. But they certainly were talking about entering the trans-Tasman market uh, long before Air New Zealand and Virgin Blue announced uh, their uh, application for uh, to have a joint venture on the Trans-Tasman route. Well, these Trans-Tasman yeah, routes are extremely competitive already. I mean, what sort of capacity are they looking at putting in there? And, and really, is there a market for it? I mean, they, they're obviously, they think there must be. They do. I think uh, the plan is they're looking either going from Perth or the Gold Coast to Auckland or Christchurch, and they'd be using their A330s. So that's uh, 300 passengers or so. 
And uh, I think their approach is that they have the lowest cost base, so they can offer cheaper fares. And plus, they've got these aircraft that they might otherwise not do anything with for a little while and leave on the ground or shift their structure around and get, get it to yeah, happen. Their, their turnaround times in Australia are actually pretty tight, but the question is, what's the ground waiting time in KL? And uh, yeah. maybe would the aircraft be better suited for a quick hop over the ditch? Yeah, because any aircraft that's sitting on the ground is a waste of money. Absolutely. Well, that's true, but if they're looking at operating a sector from Perth to Auckland, I mean, you're looking at five, six hours. I mean, that's not a short sector. It's not, not but certainly uh, that would give them reach into a corner of the world. I think many people in Asia aspire to visit, not just Australia, but also New Zealand. Yes, New Zealand's uh, tourism rates are going through the roof. Auckland Airport recently reported that it had a dramatic increase in um, in passengers, particularly from Asia. So uh, it's a beautiful place. Uh, New Zealand is an incredible place to go to. And Absolutely. They're, re- they're really working that whole tourism side. Uh, you know, you've seen Lord of the Rings, you've seen Narnia, you've seen all these other things. They were all here with some help of computers and that you can see that when Air New Zealand had those aircraft painted up in Lord of the Rings colors they were really working that whole angle and it's it's paying off for New Zealand now they're, they're getting a lot of people coming in but let, let's look at what what's happening on the Tasman you've got Pacific Blue going across you've got Qantas with their Qantas Connect or Jet Connect groups which is actually Kiwi aircraft painted to look like Qantas mainstream flown by Kiwi pilots which of course puts the uh, backup of the mainline Qantas pilots you, so you've got that you've got Air New Zealand you used to have Freedom but that sort of went under so you've got those big three going plus Jetstar. You know, now you've got Emirates as well. Emirates are flying their uh, A340s and maybe soon their 777s when they're empty. You know, fly them across. And the, the big thing about them flying their aircraft over is they've got large underhold. They're, they're making a, a fortune on the freight, apparently, more than the passengers. Mm. Uh, so now you're going to have AirAsia X wanting to do Australian domestic and Trans-Tasman. I mean, yeah, we'd heard that Lion Air is considering to come to Australia from Indonesia. I mean, do we have space for another one? Well, maybe we should touch on AirAsia looking to launch a domestic operation in Australia. And the comments from, again, Ajahn Azmanrani, who's the CEO of Aries Jets, but I think was representing the group at the conference, is that Virgin Blue has made it very clear they want to move up market. They want to increase their corporate share from 10 to 20%. If in the process they forget about sort of the economy middle market segment, AirAsia sees that there's only room for three sort of leisure carriers in the Australian market. And with Virgin Blue moving up market, they think that there would be room for AirAsia to have a domestic operation. And according to AirAsia, they would have a significantly lower cost basis than Tiger. They say they have the lowest cost basis in the world and could undercut Tiger on price. I can I can imagine, Grant, maybe you're thinking right now, oh, great, another Tiger Airways in the region. <laughs> I think, yes. <laughs> I think an AirAsia operation in Australia could actually be one of the best things ever. AirAsia. Have, have either of you flown AirAsia, by the way? Uh, no, I haven't had the opportunity. No, I've flown Garuda, but not AirAsia. I think AirAsia has a wonderful brand. It's an airline that is actually pleasant to fly with, even though it is low cost. Uh, the difference between them and Tiger Airways, uh, I think, is night and day, even though they do both nickel and dime you. It's actually pleasant to fly AirAsia, and I think they would get their branding right, and they would treat customers well, whereas I think there have been some very public incidences with Tiger Airways not being too good yeah. on the passenger front. So I think uh, an AirAsia operation in Australia would really be a great thing for the market. 
Yeah, okay. I think uh, the, the you know hopefully they would have a twenty four hour call center unlike Tiger Airways. Yes. Well, it would certainly um, put the cat among the canaries with Jetstar and Tiger, and that would be really interesting because right, already we have Virgin sort of saying, "Okay, Jetstar, Tiger, off you go, have a fight, bye bye, you guys fight down the bottom there, we're doing fine up here," and that's already starting to happen now. If Air Asia comes in, then it's going to be Jetstar, Tiger, and Air Asia going tooth and nail. You know, the fur will really be flying to keep the uh, the whole. Um, the cat thing going, then you're going to have uh, Virgin going up against Qantas at the middle to top. So it's, it's going to get a really interesting scene. I think, John, I think for AirAsia, there's a very clear benefit that they have these long haul flights into Australia, but also connect almost all of Southeast Asia and also fly to Europe. And they have a significant uh, advantage ahead of Jetstar. And if AirAsia is able to really start uh, connecting passengers throughout Australia and then feed them into their long haul operation and then feed them either into Europe or into Southeast Asia. That would be a significant threat to Jetstar and its long haul ambitions. Yep. No, that, you're definitely right on that. And then you're going to have Tiger with uh, their uh, main base, the Tiger Australia and Thai Tiger, all three of those. So they're going to have pretty good connections. So yeah, Jetstar is going to be really getting it hard. Okay. Well, uh, now we were talking a bit before about Qantas and their uh, branching out into Asia and, uh, and that sort of thing, and particularly China. What other news could we uh, get perhaps from the conference uh, about that? Yep. So Alan Joyce announced that Qantas is working with Australian regulators to permit Qantas to fly from China to Europe. So this is a new type of the kangaroo route. Uh, Qantas could go, could fly from Australia to China, then onwards to Europe. The current regulatory problem, I suspect you might think is with China. It's actually not. The regulatory problems are with the European countries. Uh, The old air services agreement permit Qantas to fly to Europe from Australia via various points in Southeast Asia, but not in China. So those agreements will need to be rewritten. Uh, Qantas has permission uh, from China to have flights from China to Europe. Uh, Right now, uh, Qantas says the Australian government is working to renegotiate an air service agreement with the European Union, which would cover 27 countries. Uh, Right now, Qantas isn't saying terribly too much about when this may happen, how many flights they could have, would any of these flights replace existing services via Bangkok, Singapore, or Hong Kong? But it's certainly a further indication of growth in the region and China's rising importance. It used to be said that Australia was a great place to do business with Japan because of time zones and things like that. And now it's it's becoming uh, the doorstep to Asia, especially China. China is is definitely becoming the new the new power in the world, and uh, Australia is pretty well located to take advantage of that. Absolutely. And while you're at that conference, well, of course, here in Australia at the moment, of course, it's an election year. We possibly looking at a change of government. Was there much talk amongst the delegates at the conference there about the political scene at the moment and what ramifications that may hold for aviation? Uh, you know, we were just talking there about the uh, Qantas uh, branch out into China, for instance, being a partly a political problem in, in a way where the government has to, you know, renegotiate agreements and all this sort of stuff. I think any government that gets elected would want to continue negotiating that agreement. That doesn't hurt any Australian airline. Uh, Maybe Tiger could put an objection to it for some reason. But really, it would help Qantas. It would help the Australia if they want to fly from China. So it's really more a national issue and not something I think that would divide the country. But on the topic of of elections, uh, the Minister for Transport, Anthony Albanese, uh, did speak, and uh, I actually was still on my way to the conference. Uh, I was on a plane that moment. That was it was the plane that I managed to break the exit row. <laughs> but uh, from what I hear from people, he didn't say much. Uh, to which. 
which everyone chimed in, oh, it must mean it's an election year. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're yeah, really right. not saying much. And what we're seeing here, of course, is what we see a lot, whereas aviation really isn't a big vote winner for them. And so uh, generally that sort of tends to get neglected around these sorts of times. Yeah, yeah. Pro- if anything, probably point an axe in aviation in terms of redirecting flights, doing something about noise would appease people. It's spanning aviation probably wouldn't be too much of a vote getter. The script of his speech is up online um, under alp.org.au. He's got it up there, and he was talking about an aircraft noise ombudsman phasing out noisy aircraft. I mean, none of this is really hugely new. Um, yeah, it's all quite old. Yeah, and he's also oh, security, full body scanners. You know, all those things that we're not really keen on. You know, they're, they're trouting that up and saying, hey, you know, we've done the first white paper. We're really cool, but failing to mention that ninety percent of that white paper was about airlines, and bugger all was about regional and um, general aviation. You know, all, all the rest of where most of the pilots come from. Yeah, you know, all all this kind of stuff. He's uh, the the. I know he's annoyed the Regional Aviation um, Association of Australia. They're they're saying, hey, come on, what about us? We're we're pretty important. They they actually want uh, aviation to be recognised as a uh, critical infrastructure for Australia because Australia t- keeps talking about pump priming infrastructure as a way to stay out of recession, but nothing happens with aviation. It's all about roads and rail and things like that. In fact, this morning I hear uh, another announcement just this morning on the news about uh, some sort of uh, scoping study into introducing some sort of high-speed rail uh, link between Melbourne and Brisbane, which it's just, I mean, there's no point. Melbourne and Brisbane before Melbourne and Sydney? Uh, it's, Uh, It's a joke. Probably via Sydney. Look, it's a joke. We already have a relatively fast rail service in the CountryLink's XPT service. It's not very well used. And why would you want to when for a fraction of the price you could hop on on an aircraft and be there in in 60 minutes? Yeah, especially as half those trains can't run at full speed anyhow because we're not doing enough maintenance on the lines. Well, let's not get me started on that, shall we? (laughs) (laughs) No, but I think uh, there are some great examples in North Asia, in China, in Japan, where you have exceptionally fast trains that are posing a very serious threat to airlines. And let's Let's be honest, trains are better for the environment than flying. And I personally would rather go on a train for two to three hours than have an hour flight. Because once you factor in having to arrive early, having to board, getting to and from the airport, the additional cost of, say, the Sky Bus, the Sydney Airport train, uh, eventually trains begin to make more sense. Well, that's certainly the case in the U.S. around the um, between Washington, New York, Boston, uh, Philadelphia, all those kind of things where it's it's actually faster to go on Amtrak than it is to uh, take a plane. But at the same time, Amtrak would still be so much more faster, have many more frequencies. For example, in Japan, between Tokyo and Osaka, uh, the <laughs> two main cities, there are trains leaving every 15 minutes. Yeah, there's, there's absolutely no point in flying. You're far faster taking a train there. And that's something that, as Steve was saying before about China and um, the high-speed trains they're investing in and so on. It's it's If you can set up that network and get people going quickly, then you can save aviation for the big stuff or the, the long haul. Remember this? Here comes the aeroplane. If Dad had experienced flight experience, your experience would have been more like this. I'm the captain of a 737 flight simulator. Advanced throttles. I'm powering down the runway. I'm up and away. That's more like it. Give Dad an exhilarating, unique flight experience. It's the ultimate Father's Day gift. Organise a gift voucher today. Call 1-800-737-800 or visit flightexperience.com.au. Flight experience. It's the ultimate flying experience. Hi, I'm Will. And I'm David. And we're two of the voices in your head. 
Come join us in the virtual hangar for a little good old-fashioned hangar flying. Well, it's not really old-fashioned. Well, what do you mean? Well, it's a Skype-based virtual hangar that only exists on the internet. But we got beer. <laughs> that is true. And we never know who we might run into. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And I really did get stick time in that F-16. Okay, okay, you win. Uh, come join us for some good old-fashioned hangar flying. Look for the Pilot's Flight Podlog in iTunes. Or visit us at pilotsflightpodlog.com. I'm Matt Hall. Hi, I'm Matt Hall. I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. Everyone wants to be Australia's champion Red Bull Air Race pilot, and now you can own a piece of Matt Hall memorabilia. Polos, T-shirts and caps for all shapes and sizes can be found at matthallracing.com. Just go to the online store and you too can be in the loop. Hello, I'm Matt Hall. (laughs) Pilot Stu here from the Pilot's Journey podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects. And welcome back, folks. This is the second recording session we're doing in our news and comment format on this episode. Uh, Will Horton is still with us. Uh, you still there, Will? I'm here, Steve. How are you? Uh, yes, good to hear you, mate, and uh, glad you're on the line. And uh, Grant is with us, so let's kick off with our uh, next subject on the list here, gentlemen. And uh, this is talking about uh, Pacific Blue, well, sort of exiting the market. Well, not, not the whole market. It's Pacific Blue pulling out of the New Zealand domestic market. Yes, which is a pretty small market compared to the entire Virgin Blue network. But the reasons, I think, are clear that after about 21 months of flying, they're losing money. Uh, John Borghetti, the CEO of the Virgin Blue Group, declined to put an exact figure on how much they're losing, but did say it was in the tens of millions of dollars and that he didn't think uh, the situation would improve. It's been on the cards for a while that uh, Pack Blue domestic New Zealand routes just weren't working out. And and honestly, now that uh, the Virgin Blue Group and Air New Zealand are going to be cooperating on the and co-chairing on the Trans-Tasman routes, honestly, I, uh, I, I reckon the uh, pulling Pacific Blue out of the domestic market may have been a little bit of a sweetener for the deal. You know, okay, guys, this, we'll just pull out there and there you go. Sure, I think that's certainly the thought. Um, although Borghetti is saying, "Oh no, this is this is independent of the joint venture application with Air New Zealand. This is really what's what's best for Pacific Blue." But certainly, Grant, I think you got right with the joint venture with Air New Zealand. It, it really doesn't make sense for them to have their own domestic operations in New Zealand. Yeah, which does raise the question of, uh, okay, they've pulled out of domestic New Zealand. They're going to share on the Trans Tasman. What other Pacific routes is Air New Zealand flying? that uh, Pacific Blue is still in competition. Does this offer up an opportunity to uh, further do code sharing on the Pacific Airways and uh, maybe pull that uh, Pacific Blue aircraft back into the VB fleet or let the leases go? What routes do you have in mind with that, Grant? Honestly, I have not done my homework and uh, reviewed what the routes are that Air New Zealand and Pacific Blue both fly together. Okay. but it's some it's it's just a consideration something to uh, i'm flagging that as a, as as something to watch cuz naturally there's uh new zealand to fiji there's new zealand to uh numia and all sorts of other parts of the pacific it'd be a fair and, bit of duplication i'd think yeah i i honestly i haven't done my full homework on that sorry guys i probably should have but uh 
I, it's just an area that I'll be I'll be watching with interest. So maybe that's something I can look at and and comment on in the PCDU commentaries in the near future. What I think is really interesting here is that it really sort of signifies a more regional approach by not only this airline group, but probably all the airline groups, uh, probably is a bit of a subtext to this. We're now looking at uh, Jetstar, looking at what's going on at the Virgin Group and saying, well, this could be an opportunity for us. So Jetstar, uh, obviously being the, uh, you know, the controlling partner in the... Uh, in the Qantas group these days. That gives them a bit of scope now to, to dictate some terms in the region, not just in Australia. Sure, and I think with New Zealand, the key there is that to have a successful operation, you really need to have frequency. And uh, Pacific Blue's domestic operations there just didn't have frequency. So by them pulling out and Jetstar bringing more aircraft in and having more flights, I think they, they could possibly do well with more frequency. Yeah, it does It does return it to a uh, two-airline kind of structure in, the, in, in terms of at least more mass people movement uh, within New Zealand. Uh, Jetstar had a very shaky start. They got uh, bagged a fair bit for cancellations. Um, A part of those cancellations were because they weren't able to do the uh, RNP approach into uh, Queenstown. They had to cancel a lot of times because of weather. Now that they're doing the, um, the RNP approaches into Queenstown and other parts of New Zealand, they're seeing that as a way of helping to improve their schedule reliability. Another interesting point here too, guys, is that you've got Virgin Blue, okay? They came into this region of the world uh, basically as a low-cost carrier. Now, we see them sort of morphing back towards a more traditional type. We're seeing them introduce business class in the region, this sort of stuff. Now, let's have a look at Air New Zealand, another big player in the region. Here's a a legacy carrier, if you like, but they're doing a lot of Virgin Group-like things lately, uh, particularly with their marketing strategy. Um, So it's interesting to see the way that the sort of service levels and, and the way operators in this region in general are, are looking there. They all sort of seem to be going from opposite ends of the scale and sort of meeting in some sort of middle ground these days. I think Air New Zealand is taking the approach of Qantas in that they are trying to cater for all types of customers. But unlike Qantas, who have both a full-service carrier and then a low-cost carrier, Air New Zealand is finding a way to be able to cater for most ends of the market on one aircraft. Yeah, that's that's true. They've got the ability to buy a different seat price. You same seat, but you can either just have just the seat uh, with a carry on. You could have the seat with uh, underhold. You could have the seat with food. So they're allowing you to say uh, when you book exactly what level of service you want. But I, I don't know how that's going to work out when um, I'm I've paid for carry-on plus underhold plus food, and I'm sitting next to someone who's just paid for the minimum, how the flight attendants are going to, I don't know whether they're going to sit you in different parts of the aircraft or whether there's going to be tags that you have. So the person next to you realizes you've paid more to get that better service or things like that. Well, you remember that uh, uh, our flight attendants were saying back in the early 80s, I think when uh, TAA was operating the the early A300 Airbus services and there was two different classes there and the seats were marked in some way. So Mm -hmm. that uh, some people, you know, if they'd paid for the full service, got the full service. But if you opted for the cheaper seat, they, you know, they somehow marked the seats so that, you know, (laughs) you don't get a meal. Yeah. So I mean, and, the point is that it's been done before. So you know, they could yep. they could do it again. Whether or not it's the best way of doing things is something else we could debate. I don't know that it would be, uh, particularly now that times have changed too. Whereas you know, people want everything. You know, people's expectations are different. I guess everything uh, for nothing. Uh, yeah, and I think you know, that could just about cause a riot these days. Whereas back in the you know the <laughs> early eighties, people would have been more accepting of that principle. I think. You know, I was just contemplating how Air New Zealand would exactly work out who gets what, who gets the meal. In comparison, AirAsia, the way they operate is that on your boarding pass, there are various codes. And throughout the flight, you just show your boarding pass if you have a meal, uh, what have you, blanket, amenity kit. 
But again, that, that sort of gets annoying. You're constantly pulling out your boarding pass. So it, so it would be nice if there was a way Air New Zealand could distinguish who gets what level of service without too much work on the passenger's end. Virgin's going down the path of uh, premium economy at the front of their 737s with uh, better seat pitch and so on, and, and the general economy in the middle and right down the very back, the word is they're going to have a, a tighter seat pitch, and uh, that's the uh, ultra discount economy down there. So they're doing it by zones of their aircraft. I think, though, Grant, uh, we are still waiting to hear what exactly the final Virgin Blue plan is for their new uh, three-class uh, 737s, but it certainly does seem that that is likely how they will progress in that, like Air New Zealand, they will be able to cater for multiple segments of the market on one single aircraft rather than pursue the Qantas strategy of having two separate carriers for different ends of the market. Okay, so we'll move on here and we'll just have a quick talk about uh, another operator that's uh, heading across the Trans-Pacific route and has been doing so for a long time, uh, and that's United Airlines. Now, we've often speculated on this show and on the Australia Desk Report that if there's going to be one player that falls out of the market with all this increased competition, it would be United. Uh, They came out recently, though, and made a statement that, uh, no, we're not worried about Delta V or any of that other stuff. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. United actually gave a very interesting presentation at the conference earlier this month in Sydney, the Australia Pacific Aviation Outlook Summit. What they're saying is that their main business is connecting points throughout America to mainly Melbourne and Sydney. So even though they no longer have that interline agreement with Virgin Blue, they are so confident that they can deliver the traffic. They have revamped their premium cabins and uh, they're confident. They are saying that they will remain here and they won't be leaving. And are they are they operating those premium cabins, uh, that product down here? I, I had heard that they weren't doing that yet, but I, I that, that may have changed. They were. Uh, funnily enough, the United executive who gave the presentation boasted that he actually flew in on the new product and was able to have a full day in Sydney and not feel the slightest bit of jet lag, and that's just how good the product is. Well, that's oh. also got to do with the vagaries of travelling this way across the date line. You don't really get that jet lagged anyway. No, you yeah. don't, because it's a night flight. You wake up and uh, you're ready to roll. Yeah, that's And gee, I bet you he wasn't in economy. <laughs> no, no, he, he did admit he was in business. Factored into this also is the fact that you've now got the United Continental merger, and that's changed a lot of things for United. One of the big things of that is uh, we're already seeing uh, the Continental United group talking about doing direct routes out of Texas to New Zealand with their 787s. So I I think one of the reasons United is sitting back going, "Eh, it's okay, we're not worried, is because now they're suddenly realizing they can offer the ability to go from ports elsewhere in the US direct to Australia, and that maybe they don't have to go through the clutter of San Francisco and LAX, which... uh, pretty heavily overloaded and a lot of pain to transition. Absolutely. Australians just hate going through Los Angeles and will pay significantly more to travel, say, through San Francisco. And I think you make a very good point about United maybe taking a step back and not being terribly worried because they know they have uh, the merger with Continental on their cards. But I think another advantage maybe is that they're considering if the 747s just can't perform, perhaps they could bring a 787 onto the route if they don't think they can sustain 747 service or it's just not economical. Yeah, well, of course, the 787 will be the next big game changer uh, when, when that aircraft finally uh, starts operating. That's going to be a game changer for not only United, but Qantas and everybody else that uses them, With particularly with regard to its its claimed range figures. Absolutely. I think right after the 787, keeping with an Australian focus, will be the next generation narrow body jet. Uh, when Brett Godfrey last year announced that he was looking to order uh, 50 more 737s from Boeing, he remarked that while everyone talks about, well, 1% fuel initiative here and there and all sorts of other initiatives you can take. The real game changer is who gets those first uh, next generation narrow bodies and can offer a 15, 20% fuel burn difference from their competitors. 
That's yeah. that means you can suddenly reduce your cost by fifteen to twenty percent. Uh, so Virgin Blue could offer cheaper seats than Jetstar Tiger if they get the first narrow bodies. Yeah, it's a, it's a big risk though because as as Cathay found, we, we were talking earlier in the pre- previous recording. Cathay were early adopters of some of the the newer aircraft and got burnt. And uh, that's one thing you've really got to watch out for is, uh, you know, like with bringing on the A380, it got delayed. uh, The MD-11 didn't live up to its fuel burn uh, calculations, all that kind of stuff. So there's a pro and con for being on the bleeding edge of new new aviation. Mm. But, uh, yeah, if that 15% does come through, then first to market will definitely have a a benefit. Just talking, too, about, uh, you know, if you like United's political strategy and and what they could have done, the uh, the executive you're talking about there, Will, was uh, Greg Caldale. And uh, one of the interesting things, I'm just looking at some of the things that he was quoted as saying here, uh, one of the things he says is, is that United had the right to object to the application uh, with the US Department of Transportation. Uh, this is with regard to the Delta V alliance. And he says they very purposely chose not to object to that. So that says something about their confidence in their product, uh, despite all the bad press that they get. Sure. Well, Qantas also had the right to object and they didn't. Yeah, they, they made the, it was interesting that the one that really made the objection was Tiger on behalf of Singapore. Yeah. I think someone, uh, an executive at Virgin Blue told me that Qantas had the dignity not to object to the JV with Delta, mainly because for so long, Qantas and United had a duopoly. So for them yeah. to say, oh, well, now we want to go back to a duopoly or something close to that, uh, that certainly would be bad for passengers. So they are realizing that their time with the duopoly has ended and now just uh, have a good fight. And one other thing on that topic is uh, something that United can do, and now they've got access to Continental's information as well, is that they, uh, they're they able to see where their passengers are coming through that are hubbing through LA or SF to come down to Australia so they can see, oh, look, we've got stacks of people coming from Chicago that have to go through LA to get to Australia. They're able to mine that data and go, well, gee, if we put a 787 with a bit of range, uh, take a few less people, but rather than a, an overloaded 747 through those busy hubs, imagine a um, you know, Chicago out of Chicago to Queensland, for example, to Brisbane, or out of Chicago to, if it has the range, to Melbourne. And they can just immediately see that by bypassing LAX, they're, they're offering that that better pay the premium, get the better flight, one-stop option uh, if the 787 allows that kind of game change with the longer-legged versions. And I'm hearing that Qantas is finding it a little difficult to be able to mine that information because uh, I remember a while back, I think it was when we were chatting with Ben Sandilands, he mentioned that uh, they used to have people who monitored and analyzed that information, but with all the downsizing and restructuring in Qantas, they lost that department. Grant, I think you absolutely make a very good point, and that is that the majority of traffic on these trans-Pacific flights isn't going to the destination. In the submission to the ACCC, Virgin Blue estimated that 60% of passengers going to Los Angeles were actually traveling beyond Los Angeles as their final destination. So the ability to really figure out where exactly passengers are going will be very critical. Um, Mm -hmm. I think for a while, though, uh, perhaps the airlines have been looking at that data, but have seen that they really can't do anything with it because they've been limited by aircraft range. Whereas now, as we've been discussing with the 787, that's no longer an issue. Yeah, and some of the 777 options with the ER and the LR and what you can do there if you can balance a slightly premium seat price against the fact you can't take as many people, things like that. I mean, the, the whole hub and spoke and having to transit leads to big problems like this, but it, it if you're able to get an aircraft that can do these major long distance point to point, then that that really does open things up exactly in this area. And certainly in the American market, the key advantage for travelers there will be is that if they can say go from New York 
to Houston or Chicago and then on to Australia or somewhere else in the world rather than through, say, Los Angeles. That will reduce the amount of time they have to spend on a domestic flight. And certainly no one needs to be reminded that uh, domestic service on U.S. carriers is not very good. (laughs) It's not like it used to be. It certainly isn't. Okay, and just before we finish up, it will be rather remiss of us not to talk about Qantas. And uh, since uh, we recorded the first session, gentlemen, uh, they've announced a profit statement. And it looks like profits are down. In fact, uh, 4.3% down uh, to $112 million. That's uh, after tax. They did a um, an announce a $377 million gross profit, which was inside their range. They were talking three to $400 million. But uh, once you come down to net, it was 112 million, which was less than last year. But I think all three of us have to agree that congratulations to Qantas for recording a profit at all in this market. Absolutely. And the interesting thing here too is that it's not even so much it's flying activities that have kept it in the black. It's it's more it's frequent flyer program. It's that's what's been claimed here in an article that we're reading on the uh, on the age.com.au uh, by Matt O'Sullivan. It's saying here that uh, Qantas profit kept aloft by the rewards program. So that's interesting in itself. Absolutely. Of the group's 468 million pre-tax interest profit, the Qantas frequent flyer program contributed 328 million. That's 70 percent. That is that is absolutely huge. Flying, it's almost like why bother flying if you can just run the frequent flyer program? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Will, I, I I've got to say your your comment on um, on the down under wings down under blog was just awesome about uh, Qantas uh, Woolworths airline. That was just great. <laughs> Thanks, Grant. I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it and uh, allowed me to uh, take continue your joke further that Jetstar is a sorry that Qantas is a Jetstar airline. <laughs> <laughs> well, they could become the whole of Qantas could become a member of the Woolworths empire for us. Folks, for those of you who don't know, Woolworths is a uh, grocery chain store here in Australia, and uh, Qantas have linked up their frequent flyer points with uh, Woolworths so that uh, as you buy your groceries with Woolworths, you're accruing frequent flyer points with Qantas. So that's where a lot of the money came from for Qantas was selling access to its plan. And not only that too, I mean, they, they, they've got arrangements with a number of banks here for uh, credit card sort of frequent flyer mm-hmm. point programs as well. I should get yep. one of those myself. <laughs> well, speaking that. of credit cards, Virgin Blue has launched its own credit cards. Maybe uh, consider them. You can also consider Jetstar, but I don't think you'll be seeing a Tiger credit card anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd want one? <laughs> <laughs> that would be, oh, I don't want to go there. The opportunities for humor on the Tiger credit card are just amazing. <laughs> It'd probably look really cool, though. Lots of oh, Tiger yeah. stripes. Yeah, that that could look, or a big cat going right across it. But. Uh, hey, oh. <laughs> Look, one, one thing on the uh, Qantas results is the big sleeper in all these results. It was glossed over when they did their uh, reporting, and a number of analysts have marked up the Qantas share price. They've said, hey, this is great. Qantas have got a, a great result. They're looking great for the new year. They've got a cash reserve. Mark up. And, and everyone's focusing on this cash reserve and how Joyce should be pretty happy you can go through it. But I, I think they're just reading the spin. They haven't really analyzed the results. If you look at the results, 70% from frequent flyer points. Is that sustainable? Don't know. But the core business of aviation, if you look at its profit, the bulk of its profit was made in the first half of the financial year. And in the last quarter, especially, it was abysmal. Even Jetstar, the shining light of the Qantas empire, made poor profit in the second half. And this is really interesting because when Virgin Blue came out, I think it was around Easter, with their uh, they downgraded their profit because they cited a softening in the market. 
Qantas were doing lots of spin. They were saying, oh, business is picking up. No, we're not being affected by the softening. Oh, it's all good. But if you look at the underlying information, not the spin that they gave when they released their their, uh, results, but the underlying stuff presented to the uh, Australian Stock Exchange and things like that, you'll find that uh, it tanked towards the end of the year. The market softened. Tiger is prowling around the very bottom end of the market, uh, the bottom of Jetstar's market especially. And... uh, yeah, I think that's likely to continue into the first half of the next financial year. So I think Alan Joyce needs to be uh, sitting on that cash reserve for emergencies. And uh, I think the analysts are probably being a little bit silly by saying market up. What do you reckon, Will? Absolutely. Uh, the second half profit was almost nothing compared to the first half. And it is absolutely a worry. Although at the same time, they did say that their guidance was between 300 to 400 million. So even if you factor in, say, another 23 million to their second half profit, uh, it's still a bit low. But again, there, there certainly is concern. We, we also have to consider what the effect of the volcanic ash was. Uh, that yep. really messed up flights in Europe. There's also the unrest in Bangkok. The Qantas has had to figure uh, of what it costs. Cost, but they haven't really explained how much of that was lost revenue versus an absolute loss of profit. Uh, but certainly, Grant, you, you said it quite well. Things are not looking good for uh, the next half a year. I think there's a couple of other factors too to consider there. Number one is you've got John Borghetti. Now, we talk about this often, but it, it really is the case. And we've heard this from inside the industry. He is still shattered from not getting the top job at Qantas. And now that Virgin Blue is there, he's out to make them pay. So he's going to be chasing Qantas and their profits as aggressively as he can. And we're already seeing that in the in the way he's restructuring that group. The other thing to think about too is, Grant, you made the point there that how long can this be sustainable? Well, everybody's got to eat. And a lot of people shop at places like Woolworths and a lot of people use credit cards mm-hmm. and they're always going to be accruing frequent flyer points. So if there's a determination for the Qantas brand in and of itself to survive, they have to diversify this way, don't they? I mean, otherwise they won't yep. survive. No, that's, that is a very good point. But my concern was how much of the, uh, the money they earned was from the initial buy-in as opposed to the ongoing sustained. Absolutely. I think Qantas did hint at that themselves, that a lot of the growth in the frequent flyer program was attributed to a surge of enrollments because of the uh, partnership with Mm -hmm. Woolworths. Even though I think that if you enrolled with Qantas during this promotion, they waived the membership fee. Uh, For some of our listeners from America, uh, while you can enroll in your frequent flyer program in America for free, uh, here in Australia, Qantas hits you with how much is it? A hundred dollars, Grant? Uh, I haven't looked at it lately, but it used to be up around that mark. It was quite expensive unless you were doing a long haul flight. Right. So again, though, the question though is how much of this was just a one-off bonus because they were really ramping up their frequent flyer program and how much of this can be sustained going forward. But yeah, again, I, I think that this will be a profit stream for them in, in coming Oh, definitely. Years. Well, they're definitely. charging $100 and Emirates is free. Yeah, no, uh, same with Garuda and a number of the other airlines. But uh, I think that's because Qantas does a lot of domestic. You find that an airline that does a lot of domestic as well as international, they will charge you to join their frequent flyer point program. And it's either it's either large if you're a domestic traveler, but token if you do international, things like that. But yeah, the, the other aspect of this um, one-off part was the actual, okay, Woolworths, we're giving you access to all our people, plus these other chains and these other groups, there's a, a, an amount to pony up to get buy-in to our program, which is full of these elite top-end people as well as the general Australians and so on. So there would have been a buy-in stage of that, not just for signing people up, but also the amount that Woolworths might have paid and things like that. So yeah, there's definitely a sustainable part of it, but I don't see it being as huge as it was this year. So if you t- if that is the case and you've got the softening of the market, as Steve said, you've got Borghetti and Virgin tr- attacking Ver- um, Qantas at the upper end, and then you've got Tiger attacking Jetstar at the bottom end. 
then it's not looking that brilliant and it's not a walk in the park. So well, I think on, on one and one of the more remarkable aspects, granted, as we've been saying, has been the Friedman Flyer program. The other big remarkable item wasn't actually revenue, but actually savings. The Q Future program delivered $533 million in savings. That's huge and that's great. Yep. But again, it does raise the concern that Q Future only runs for another two years. After yep. that, what's going to happen? Yeah, and there's a lot of renegotiations coming up. Uh, they're having fun trying to negotiate with their pilots. They're having fun trying to negotiate with their engineers. Uh, they're, they're trying to get them into the same situation as the Qantas Cabin Crew Australia subsidiary company that allows them to operate their uh, new flight attendants on uh, the same kind of structures as the Jetstar flight attendants. So you've got a big dichotomy between the old school flight attendants who are on the original program and earning quite good money and benefits and so on against the new school QCCA staff who uh, you know don't get as good a deal. And they're trying to introduce the same kind of thing with pilots and engineers. And, and that's that's going to be a, they're looking at that as another big savings area. Uh, how well they go with that, that's time will tell. It's going to be very interesting. In all of this, I know we're bagging on Qantas a bit. It's sometimes fun, but um, like I've got to say, major kudos to um, to Qantas. They pulled a profit in very trying times. They're doing all they can to uh, to control their bottom line as well as boost profits. They're looking at new areas uh, such as their frequent flyer programs as a, as a cash cow. They're doing all they can in their in their aviation business area. Big hats off and well done for making the profit. But I really think that the uh, journalists and analysts who are saying, "Oh, they got they're they're, ho- they're in, they're going really well," mark up the shares. I, I I think that's being a little bit silly. So you won't be buying any Qantas stock soon, Grant? No, um, I, I, I think I'd probably put my money into uh, you know coffee beans. And <laughs> uh, there's something worth investing in. <laughs> well, we might just wrap it up there, gentlemen. It's been a fascinating discussion, or really two discussions. Uh, we we have uh, been fraught with a, quite a few technical difficulties on this recording, but uh, Will, we uh, certainly appreciate you sticking with us. Uh, tell the listeners where they can find you online. Sure. So uh, first of all, I'm on Twitter at winglets747. I'm also on Flight Global, which where I blog on Wings Down Under, and you can find that at flightglobal.com slash down under. And that's excellent, mate, and it's it's an excellent blog, folks. If you don't read that one, we highly recommend you do. Uh, Grant and I often uh, reference that uh, blog to, to find a lot of our information. If it wasn't for people like Will, <coughs> yes. we'd have nothing to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, guys. Yeah, uh, mate, it's been absolutely awesome having you on the show. Really enjoyed uh, discussing the latest news and, and views in the area information, so... Thanks very much for coming on. We're looking forward to bringing you on again in the near future for another news review. Definitely. look forward to it too. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Grant. Give your business a professional edge with promotional solutions from audio-visual media. Jingles, Jingles, radio ads, ads, television ads, ads. stunning visual presentations, cards, brochures and catalogues available in print or digital media such as CD or DVD. Audio-visual media, a complete solution to your business promotion. Visit our website at www.audiovisualmedia.com.au or call us on 0407-091-524. Fire. 
talk wild about anything that flies. It's the Air Pigs Podcast. Check us out at AIRPIGZ.com. Listening to this podcast, chances are you're in the aviation industry. You could also be spending bucket loads of cash on advertising your business. Well, this won't cost you bucket loads. Advertise here on Plane Crazy Down Under, listened to by hundreds of aviation enthusiasts and professionals who might really like to hear about how your business could help theirs. We'll even throw in some advertising on our website as part of the deal. See our affordable rates at www.planecrazydownunder.com. Just click on the advertising with PCDU link. Hi, it's Rob Mark from JetWine.com and the Airplane Geeks. And whenever I'm in Australia, I listen to those two crazies, Steve and Grant, at the Plane Crazy Down Under podcast. Of course, I'm not really in Australia that often, but if I were in Australia often, I would, I'd have no hesitation at all recommending Stephen Grant's show to anyone who had very little to do with their time. Of course, actually, I've never even been to Australia. Plain crazy down under. Don't leave home without them. I copped a bit of a shellacking recently regarding a view in which I discussed the foibles of my fellow travellers. This was not a commentary on flying as such, merely an observation about the great unwashed I was travelling with, but I'd like to consider myself a fair sort of chappy, and in all truthfulness there are numerous things that I love about flying. So, in the interest of even-minded ignorance and balancing the ledger, here's a small sample. Hi, I'm Anthony Simmons, and this is The View from the Lounge. I love the concept of flight. The idea that nowadays you can take several tens of tonnes of metal, plastic, carbon fibre and other bits, hand them over to Boeing or Airbus or the like, and what they give you in return is something that in my mind looks as if it shouldn't go over a speed of about 10 kilometres an hour on the ground. Now, I studied applied science at university, but that was in oenology and viticulture, so I have bugger all physics. Yet some of the basics and fundamentals of the aerodynamics and control systems were thought of and developed in the early days by blokes whose day jobs were as wide and diverse as a railway engineer, an astronomer and two bicycle building brothers to name but a few. Mind blowing really. Then there is my delight in flying as opposed to the concept of flight. I am an infrequent flyer, but just get a kick out of the wow factor of getting on the big metal bird, and in no time at all from Melbourne, I can either be driving large pieces of farm equipment on a mate's piggery in South Australia, dining harbourside in Sydney with a dear friend regaling me of her latest adventures in forensic pathology, or wandering cemeteries in Tasmania looking for ancestors. This is just in Australia. It was rather delightfully put to me that in the time it takes me to fly to Queensland to visit my grandmother, I can fly from Germany to Egypt. I suspect that much to the distress of Stephen Grant, I'm overjoyed by the rise of cheap carriers. The world is literally my oyster, and that provides anyone with an open mind, a bit of the folding and a cast iron stomach to experience different cultures, cuisines and characters in the same time it took for the family Simmons to drive to Lawn for a summer holiday in my youth. Fact is, it was cheaper in 2008 for me to buy a return ticket around the world than it was to purchase a return ticket from Sydney to Port Moresby in 1988. 
There is also the huge indebtedness I owe to various airlines over the years to expanding my love of music and comedy. The in-flight entertainment systems of not-to-be-named airlines have provided me with an ever-expanding CD and DVD collection. I'm somewhat ashamed to admit that it started out as an album and cassette tape collection, but I'm trying to keep it current for the younger podcast listener. Indeed, it was that very flight from Sydney to Port Moresby that I developed my ongoing love affair with opera. Despite being heavily involved with music at high school, I considered opera to be a couple of rubber-lunged Brunhildes wailing about the loss of some personal item and throwing themselves off the nearest cliff, very much like Her Majesty's Customs Processing at Heathrow today. The well-written and articulated explanation at the start of the recording, and me being a captive audience, finally got the message of the beauty of the art form through my thick adolescent skull. I adore the view from 20,000 feet, the look of a landscape that resembles a model train set. There's a poem I remember from an anthology that was given to my father as a young lad called The Land of Counterpane. It's about a boy, in bed, ill, creating a world with his toys across his blanket, and that invokes in me the image of looking down upon cities and towns, seas and ships of a miniature wonderland, some of the most amazing sights I've ever seen. You cannot help but be moved by that vision, and that is a vision I never imagined I would ever see. Flying has made that possible. The ancillaries that go with flying, the joy of packing, looking through the visa stamps of my first passport, the luggage carousels and the wait to spot your bag coming through the plastic strips. Personally, I think airlines could make a killing charging for rides on the luggage carousel whilst waiting for your baggage. The kiddies would love it, and so too, I think, would the adults. The fact that the sum total knowledge my German grandmother-in-law has about Australia comes from the Flying Doctors, a 1990s Aussie soap opera set around the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Then there's the Royal Flying Doctor Service itself, the Flying High movie, the somewhat disturbingly erotic opening title sequence from Doctor Strangelove, all due to the wonders of flight. I could go on, but most of you will probably want to shoot your iPod. So, to the PCDU podcast listeners who are involved in the aviation industry, in any manner or capacity, be proud that in some way you provide a great degree of joy and happiness to the many aero nuff-nuffs in the world, especially the infrequent flyer in seat 22B. So thanks, folks, and that's The View from the Lounge. Ah, physics. Ah, leverage and pressure. And cork comes out of bottle. I'll drink to that. Okay, folks, well, in a previous episode, you will remember that uh, one of our listeners, Damien Rose from up in Queensland, was uh, good enough to send us some audio from one of his training flights, some cockpit audio, which was uh, really fascinating to listen to. And, uh, of course, we've mentioned Damien a few times before because he's taken the extraordinary step of uh, selling the family home to pay for uh, his flying training. Uh, and so uh, Damien, uh, perhaps rather foolishly, has just popped up on Skype here, so we thought we'd grab him uh, quickly and have a bit of a chat about uh, how it's going. How are you, Damien? Yeah, good, thanks, Steve. How are you doing? Very good, mate. And joining us today in the studio as well is Anthony Simmons, the infrequent flyer. G'day, Anthony. Uh, g'day, Steve. Grant, and uh, big hello to you, Damien. Thanks, Anthony. G'day, Grant, and, uh, and Anthony also. Well, what we thought we'd do is, uh, seeing as we've just heard the view from the lounge and uh, just getting a more of an understanding of, uh, of Anthony's appreciation of flight and uh, the things that he understands about it and perhaps some of the things that he doesn't. Uh, we thought we would get Damien on and uh, he can uh, fill us all in and bring Anthony up to speed and perhaps the rest of us as well. What do you think about that, mate? I think I'll need to uh, just get my textbooks down off the shelf if that's <laughs> going to be the case. Uh, hey, come on, Damien. You have graduated. You're now a private pilot. You're going on for night VFR and going all the way out for commercial and uh, instrument. You're supposed to know this stuff, man. Yeah, that's that's the 
theory, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in theory, there is no difference between theory and practice. Okay. Oh, very true. Okay, so Damien, uh, bring us up to speed. Uh, how many hours in the logbook now and uh, what ratings have you got racked up so far? Yeah, I got my private pilot's licence a month ago today, actually, which was, <laughs> that's a story in itself that I could go on for a couple of hours about that flight. And tonight I've got my night visual flight rules rating uh, flight test. Um, I had my second night nav last night, which took me out to Gundawindi and then up to, oh, on, en route to a place called Tara and then had to do a diversion back to Toowoomba. Almost didn't happen due to weather, this um, uh, cloud that's been blowing in. And uh, I've completed my commercial general knowledge theory exam, my meteorology exam and my human performance and limitations exam and, and blitzed those. I've got four to go. There's seven exams in total for your commercial theory subjects. And, uh, and once I've completed those exams, then I'll obviously, after obtaining the required flight experience, be able to prepare then for the commercial flight test. Flight hours at the moment, I'm sitting at about, this is off the top of my head, I've cracked the 100-hour mark, total experience, and I'm at about 25-ish hours um, piloting command time. Sounds like you're not messing around with it either. Oh, when you've got four kids at home between two years and ten and a wife and you're all jammed into your parents, rather large, but still jammed in with your parents, in-laws in her case, um, yeah, time is of the essence. <laughs> yes, I imagine <laughs> yeah, there's so. a slight incentive there to, to uh, get out and get earning and get into a new house, right? Oh, exactly. And it's interesting, you know, I was talking to a guy just the other day at the club who um, he's young and single and um, he does very well for himself driving trucks and he saved up a fair bit of cash and, and he's he's almost ready to sit his commercial exam. He's actually just got his instrument rating on, on Monday, so congratulations to him. Um, huge cool. undertaking doing your instrument rating. I don't Indeed. anticipate doing that for probably another six to 12 months. And this is, I've heard it a few times from a few different people, commercial students, where when they're getting towards the end of particularly the theory study, they just start to slow down and lose momentum. And, and you know, he said to me, gee, you've done well to keep going so hard but then it's because of the different pressures that I've got the different incentives of as you put it to, to keep going so hard yeah every time you go home you get reminded of why you need to get this over with <laughs> oh yes yes when I have the, the girl sleeping in the room right next to me it's incentive to get my house back so I can have the kids down one end and and the wife and I up the other end again don't worry the incentive's definitely there <laughs> that good buffer zone that's right. Having a potential career uh, at the end of it is, uh, you know, something to, to really keep you focused. I know Anthony and I, of course, are both train drivers and we've been through the uh, the 18 months of hell that is the uh, train drivers course down here in Melbourne. And it's it's a similar thing there where you've got your career riding on passing that course and studying the theory. So uh, uh, I guess, Anthony, we can imagine uh, where he's coming from. Oh, I can imagine it very well. I recall the whole training program that both you and I went through to qualify as suburban train drivers down here in Melbourne. And I'd have to say it was some of the most arduous and painful experiences, especially the whole study period. I, we obviously don't have the rating systems or the, the equivalent tickets that you require. It's just the single ticket, but the component parts of it and the, of the courseware that you need to know and the knowledge that you've got to not only be able to retain, but also be able to dredge out of your mind in literally a split second is quite mm. incredible. And I'd imagine, Damien, that'd be pretty much the same for yourself. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, and it's interesting, you know, you talk to any anyone in the aviation industry that has anything to do with CASA and, uh, and exams and you'll generally get a rolling of the eyes and, and, you know, a comment of how ambiguous they can word questions when it comes to theory exams. But in saying that, you know, people have said to me, oh, so how are you going in the exams? And I'll go, oh, you know, I got 87% for this one. Oh, that's fantastic. And I'm, no, it's not. I said, because it's 13% that... Uh, 
it gives you an idea of what you need to know, what you need yeah. to be able to have at your fingertips because let's face it, you know, when you're at 10,000 feet or 40,000 feet, you just got to know it. You know, it's, it's your life. It's the lives of other people just like you, uh, um, you know, taking command of suburban trains. you got how many hundreds of people on board and you just got to know what you got to know. Yes, the only advantage is that we don't get much above about three feet off the ground. <laughs> yeah, but it takes you guys a lot longer to stop. <laughs> True. Yeah, I often, uh, I often, uh, having been through the uh, commercial uh, pilot syllabus, you know, uh, back when I was younger, and then going through the uh, the train driving course, there's a lot of similarities in the, in the way that, um, both schemes are sort of set up in a way. The, the different components of learning. I mean, for us, it's you know, signalling and rules and regulations and all that sort of stuff. But um, you can apply that uh, just as easily to air law and the physics of flight and uh, weather and all this sort of stuff. So, for my way of thinking, uh, when I went through the train drivers course, it was a case of, oh God, here we go again. Yeah, right. <laughs> Fortunately but for you- me, when I got through that course I had a job at the end of it unlike when I did my commercial pilot license yeah that's yeah. what I was about to say you've um you had that opportunity at the end of it and it, it, it's interesting in in this situation and all those other you know fresh commercial pilots out there and those in training it's it is totally unknown and it, it really isn't a case of of what you know it's a case of who you know in this industry absolutely is yep. it yeah, is definitely. it also the job opportunities specific to your location within Australia is there are there areas or regions or hubs that have a tendency to have more vacancies or more opportunities for freshly qualified pilots? I mean, you're obviously in Toowoomba. Um, would it make any difference if, say, you were training down here at uh, the Harry Hawker Airport at, say, Moorabbin? Yeah, I, I believe so. And and with job opportunities for fresh, out-of-the-mill, so to speak, commercial pilots, there is really limited uh, areas of, of work that, that a fresh commercial pilot can get because of the main thing is lack of experience. Um, and, for example, and the other thing with uh, new job opportunities for new commercial pilots is that it can be seasonal as well. So you'll hear if you, you sit in the, the forums like the Downwind Forum for example you'll hear of people asking you know what's going on as far as uh, CPL jobs go for new CPLs and they'll say oh you know the, the wet in the dry season you'll be able to head up to Broome or, or up to the north and do tourist flying or there's the other common uh, new commercial job of what's colloquially known as meat bombing or sending parachutists outside of the plane. Um, so I was just trying to think what that was, actually. Meat, meat bombing, yeah. yeah. So it's <laughs> flying for parachutists, that's right. It's so, used to be called jump pilot, but that's way more fun. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, um, yeah, definitely. And, and Anthony, being in a place like Moorabbin, or even, you know, uh, a metro centre like Melbourne, there's going to be a lot more opportunity there. But in saying that, you would also have to think there's going to be a lot more fresh commercial pilots down there as well. Yeah, you've got the competition because of the larger yeah. population. It almost and, sounds and that if it's a chicken and the egg problem is that you need to get your hours up to increase your opportunities uh, to land a full-time job as a commercial pilot. But then you've got to how do you get your hours up to then go on to get the opportunity to put in for well, a commercial pilot's license. And that's half, that's half the battle. Um, and that's why fresh commercial pilots get paid next to nothing because yep. they're basically paying for the privilege of building the hours. And it's not that the operators necessarily want to... Uh, this is the way I understand it. It's not necessarily that the operators want to restrict these new commercial pilots from flying their planes. It's actually the insurance companies that won't right. allow the operators yep. to have these new commercial yep. pilots fly their planes. So it is a case of doing meat bombing or doing tourist flying or, or just scrounging whatever you can get, you know, ferrying planes from A to B to get to that magic 500-hour mark where the insurance 
insurance companies will now say, you can employ yeah. this guy. I, I know a couple of guys who, even when they were doing the private, they would do the famous mile high flights. You'd uh, grab a six-seater, go up, you know, split the costs with the, with the guys. You'd build hours, um, and the folks in the back would uh, have a little fun and um, get to join the mile high club. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> A couple of people have done that, uh, just put the word out to friends and then it goes to friends of friends and friends of friends of friends and next thing you know, you're getting a call saying, what's it going to cost to split a flight? You know, uh, other ones were people ju- jumping planes and flying out to places like the Brown Brothers Winery here or, um, you know, restaurants that are on the side of a um, of an airstrip and you yep. get a few people together, you go fly out there, you're all splitting the fee. Sure, you can't have the bottle of, bottle of wine with them, but, uh, you know, just make sure it's not too far to fly back from the uh, from the outlying place to, to home because there's no toilets in your aircraft that's right yeah, yeah but so the, there, are, you know, there are other ways whatever works what about uh, an instructor rating Damien a lot of people do it that way have you considered or are you considering uh, going down that path perhaps look I have um, in fact last week it, I really seriously started to consider it I since I wanted to fly since I was a little kid, my father was in the Air Force um, and so I kind of grew up around planes and he was with 9 Squadron in Vietnam and then back here at Amberley so, and he was in Friday 2 Squadron with the F-111s. So I grew up around aircraft, always wanted to be a pilot but me, like a lot of those other young fellas, in my father's words, didn't apply myself and therefore didn't get the required <laughs> grades. That yeah. sounds very familiar. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, but you know, life's turned out as such that uh, we had the equity in our house to make this happen. I was miserable in my job and my wife said, look, I'm sick of you being unhappy and coming home like an ogre every night. What do you want to do? And I said, well, this is what I want to do. In fact, I was flying home from Japan when I was 21 and I was, I'd was i been over in Japan for two years and uh, and I was walking through Narita Airport and I heard these Australians behind me and of course I'm like, wow, Australian accents and I ripped around and here's these two pilots. Cathay Pacific pilots and I said what are you guys where are you going they said oh we're flying the flight to Hong Kong and I said oh I'm going to Hong Kong on my way home I haven't been home for two years and they went oh alright they said uh, what flight do you want and I said 505 and I said oh we're flying that flight tell you what give it 40 minutes after takeoff. come upstairs it was a 747 and tell the, the stewardess that we want to see you and I went yeah rightio so 40 minutes into the flight I'm sitting there watching my watch and yep. the minute it hit 40 <laughs> minutes up I go upstairs and there was a steward up there I said oh the captain said he wanted to see me 40 minutes into the flight and the steward goes yeah whatever I said no 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 he wanted to see me can you go and, and check with him please so we went up to the you know the pre 9-11 days this is back in 1998 got on the phone waved me up and there I was in a 747 cockpit at like 35,000 fleet dragging another plane off that was flying to Taipei and I remember cool. it was amazing I've never seen the sky like it in my life before anyway I remember the, the co-pilot the first officer asking me you know what do you want to do when you get home what are you going to do with your life you're 20 and I said, oh, look, I don't really know. He said, what have you always wanted to do? And I said, I've always wanted to be a pilot. He said, well, do it. He said, bust your butt. He said, that's what he did. He actually learned down at Moorabbin and he worked two jobs to get his pilot's licence and he said, look where I am. I got home and I didn't do it. And and here I am at 33, about almost 34, four kids, sold my house because I'm sick of not living the dream. Yeah, well, I can equate to that. I'm, I'm doing something similar with my ballooning. Uh, I mean, I've been ground crew with balloons for about five years and around all my IT stuff. And you know, IT is fun and it can pay good money, but uh, I've been doing it since 1986 and I need a change. And mm. always want to fly and the times are right. You know, I'm not getting paid to, to study like if I, I tried to be an air traffic controller or if I went off to be a train driver, I'd get a, a minimal wage while I'm studying. So I've got to try and juggle work around it all. But yeah, I'm, I'm off to, to get the private and then work through and get the commercial and make a living as a balloon pilot. So I know what you mean, where you're coming from. You know, you've got to do it. But shame you didn't do it at 21, but it's not like it's too late. It's actually, well, a very, it. it's actually a very similar experience to myself in regards to the train.
train driving because uh, it had always been in the back of my mind that, yes, I'd love to do it. My father worked for the railways for the whole of his career, but in a similar situation to you, I suppose, Damien, I finally, it wasn't that I wasn't enjoying the job I was in, but I couldn't see myself going any further without having to make large sacrifices of time. And I was uh, a similar age. I think I was 33 or 34 when I started the training and uh, I was 35 when I qualified. And look, all I can say is go for it because as far as I'm concerned, it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Yep. And that's, you know, my wife, her only issue, obviously, because women are nurturers and they love to nest. And her only issue was we had to sell the nest and I promised her she'd get another one one, one day. And um, <laughs> and that's what we worked towards. So to answer your question, Steve, initially, I uh, yeah, the goal was to become an airline pilot. And, and basically that was because it's financially driven. They get paid very well for what they do. Um, this is me talking. I'm sure if you have a discussion with an airline pilot, they might feel differently. Um, <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if I do become an airline pilot, we'll have this conversation again. We'll pull <laughs> um, this one out and play it back to you, yeah. <laughs> that's it. The difference is, though, and, and my wife's a Toowoomba girl. She's born and raised here, and, and she wants to raise the kids here. And so, obviously, for me to become an airline pilot, we'll have to move to a capital city, and that's not necessarily appealing to her. So, instructor rating, yes, that could be appealing because it could allow me to stay here in Toowoomba. So, uh, what aircraft types have you flown? Uh, what are you doing the bulk of your training in, Damien? I did all of my GFP in a Trauma Hawk, which was quite exhilarating and I'm glad I did I had the option to start off to do it in the Tomahawk or to do it in a Warrior and I almost went the Warrior and and my main instructor that I did my training with uh, he said look he said the Tomahawk was designed as a a trainer Um, it's got pretty ordinary handling characteristics it's designed to drop a wing you know rather than the, the Warrior it's very difficult to stall a Warrior like yeah. the Cessna 172, you kind of got to work at it to get it to stall. Whereas the Tomahawk, you you slip up for a couple of seconds yeah. and the next minute you've got a wing dropped. And, and uh, so I did the bulk of, well, I did all of my GFPT in a Tomahawk. And, uh, and then I did the first two navs I did in a, oh, it's one of the club's 2002 172 Sierras with a G1000 cockpit. Um, I did my first two navs in that, and then I'd planned on going onto the club's other 2002 172 Sierra with the uh, six-pack, but it had engine issues, so they actually had to replace the engine in that. So I did the remainder of my PPL navs in a Warrior, um, a Warrior that was about a year older than myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but awesome plane. I love the Warriors. I just think they're rock-solid, stable, fantastic aircraft. Um, And I've done, since done, uh, a nav and some general flying back in the 172 with the G1000. I've just done all of my night VFR stuff in the 172, and that's what I'll be flying tonight. How did you find the transition to uh, flying with a glass cockpit? Was that an issue for you, or do you prefer it, or uh, how does that compare to the steam gauges? I've actually never flown a glass cockpit uh, myself, except in the uh, flight experience flight simulator. Well, I... I've been a flight simulator buff for years, and so you know, I've yes, I've tried to take a seven four seven off from the two thousand meter strip here in Toowoomba, and uh, nice. you don't, you don't <laughs> succeed. I've never succeeded. Um, <laughs> so having mucked around in flight sim, it wasn't too much of a shock. Um, as far as you know, looking at the HSI and the artificial horizon and the the uh, airspeed and the altitude tapes. There was a little bit of getting used to a few things. The main thing that's been the headache is actually learning how to, um, you know, put a flight plan into the the GPS side of the G1000, and and how to use that side of the the uh, the GPS unit in itself. But the Garmin are really good. They've actually they provide a, a standalone 
G1000 simulator so you can sit it on your computer and it's exactly the same as the real thing. So a little bit of transition. To be honest, I prefer to fly steam gauges. I just feel more comfortable in them, but I'm fine flying the, the G1000 as well. You'll probably find that changes once you, the more hours you spend on the on the glass, eventually you go and jump into a steam gauge cockpit and go, oh, right. You're, prob- you're probably right. More than likely, I guess it's what you're used to seeing, isn't it? Now, Anthony, of course, you're a bit of a railway buff, and uh, when we say steam gauges, I'm sure that's exciting you a bit. Well, I can honestly say that the last part of this conversation, I've understood absolutely nothing. <laughs> Sorry, but, Anthony. <laughs> no, no. I think I think I've I think in my ignorance, or at least in my um, sort of naive way, worked out at least the steam gauges you're referring to the actual mechanical instrumentation, whereas a glass cockpit, it's a obviously like a holographic. Um, heads up in front of you on the on the glass like uh, some European cars have? Close. You give the man a prize anyway. <laughs> um, steam gauges are mechanical gauges and, uh, and they actually run off the vacuum pump. Why they're called steam gauges, I don't know. I haven't looked that one up on Google yet, but I'm sure it'll tell me if I ask. Because they're like the, uh, uh, from the steam age era, they're antique, that kind of thing. Ah, right. Well, there you go. I have been educated. Um, the glass cockpit, no, it doesn't, in the aircraft I've been flying, it doesn't actually project it up onto a heads-up display. But if you imagine in the cockpit of the aircraft, there's two uh, 15-inch LCD monitors. Ah, right. So, yeah, that, that's why they call it a glass cockpit, because you've got two big glass screens, or in some aircraft you've got more. Um, and, and everything that's normally displayed on the steam gauges is displayed on these on the panels. So one big panel we use for GPS and navigation, and the other big panel we use to replace the normal six gauges. And the idea is with the way that they've set them up, but it's interesting, you read a human performance and limitations book and it tells you the pros and cons of both. The idea is that it's easier and quicker to see all the information. I've done about five hours of instrument flying in the glass cockpit and I've oh, about three and I've done about four hours flying in the glass. Certainly easier to to instrument fly in the glass cockpit than it is on a, in the steam gauges. Way easier. Yeah, your situational awareness is much better. Um, yeah, you've got your, especially if you've slaved a GPS in with your um, nav database and all that kind of stuff, and you've got your actual current position heading, and uh, there's your there's your terrain around you and the locations and things like that. Boom, right on the screen. So. Between that and the the whole presentation of the six pack of instruments on the on the other glass panel, it's, it it does make your situational awareness and following the needles a lot easier. Yeah, for sure. All right then. Well, we might just leave it there for now, Damien. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on and uh, having a bit of an impromptu chat with us. And uh, if you don't mind, mate, we might uh, just uh, catch up with you from time to time and see how it's all going. Hey, yeah, that'll be fine. Just let me know. And uh, you've got a blog too, I think, where you're documenting your uh, your journey through aviation, haven't you? Yeah, I'm about three flights behind. It's at uh, DamienJRose.com. D-A-M-I-E-N, the letter J and Rose, as in the flower, dot com. I also um, put the same posts into the downwind blog as well. So if you want to give downwind.com.au a plug, I think that's a, a worthwhile website to go to if you're Australian. Oh, yes, we and, think so too. <laughs> yeah, well, we've got our forum on there. It's got to be good. <laughs> I've had a look. Yes, yes. Yeah. All right, excellent, folks. Well, uh, Damien's also provided us with another recording of some cockpit audio. I think, Damien, this was a uh, night VFR flight you've done recently? Yeah, last night. I, I, I throw the audio recorder on because you never know what you're going to catch. And um, <laughs> we flew out to Gundawindi, which is on the border of New South Wales and Queensland, to the west of here. And then we were tracking north to Tara and um, we'd only left Gundawindi for a couple of minutes or about five or six minutes and I turned onto the Brisbane centre frequency of air traffic control and within a couple of minutes there we um, heard 
the controller confirming uh, someone making a pan call, which is an you know like a distress call, wow. not a mayday call, but a you know, one less than a mayday call. And uh, it turns out it was a military jet. We couldn't hear what the pilot was saying because we can't listen on their frequencies, but we could hear what the controller was saying. And, uh, yeah, to cut a long story short, it was a, an F-111, and I won't give away what happened. You'll have to listen to the recording. And it was awesome to listen to the air traffic controller and the, oh, I guess, the clarity of his thinking and how, how quick he was able to respond. And, you know, perhaps, I think it's Ben, the, the air traffic controller you guys get on. Yeah, yeah, he, might right. even, he might even comment on that and, and maybe share an experience that he's had. But, yeah, it was awesome to catch it on, on uh, a recording of something that happened to one of our military jets albeit an f-111 that's kind of on the way out anyway but yeah hmm. interesting well that'll be coming up straight after this interview so uh damien we'll leave it there mate and thanks for joining us today cheers my pleasure anytime thanks mate really appreciate it mile high flyers promo take 229 cue music Action. Hank here, wanting to tell all the listeners of Plane Crazy from Down Under about the Mile High Flyers. Mile High Flyers? the hell is that? Is that some sort Cut. of crazy sex Cut. club? I can't be promoting Hank, that crap. No, the Mile High Flyers are an aviation podcast based in the Mile High City. Try it again. Mile High Flyers promo, take 230. Cue music. Action. Hank here, wanting to tell all the Plane Crazy listeners Cut. about the no. Mile High Flyers. That would be Plane Crazy Down Under podcast listeners. Try it again from the top. Mile High Flyers promo, take 231. Cue music, action. Hank here, wanting to tell all the listeners of Plane Crazy Down Under about the Mile High Flyers. Kill the music. I think you've had too many beers. You better take a break. I'll see if we can fix this in post. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Podcast Network. TheVoicesInYourHead.com And welcome back, folks. So I'll tell you what, uh, Damien Rose, he's doing really well. And I'll tell you what, Grant, he's getting through that training very, very quickly. Yeah, well, there's, there's nothing quite like uh, leaving your normal work and focusing purely on aviation to get through your uh, licenses and uh, certificates and so on pretty quickly. And more power to him, I tell you, mate. He's doing very well. Yep, excellent stuff, mate. So actually, it was a little while ago that we recorded that one, so I'm sure that Damien is uh, far more advanced now than uh, when we recorded that interview with him. Uh, in fact, we, uh, we ought to point out, Grant, that uh, we've been uh, fraught with uh, technical difficulties on this episode. We've uh, actually, uh, you may have noticed that uh, that recording session with Will Horton actually went over two sessions, and um, unfortunately, uh, some of the news that's in that is a little bit non-current now, unfortunately, Grant. Uh, there's been a few little developments uh, since we recorded those uh, sessions with Will. Yeah, not the least of which has been an election even though we don't have a government afterwards but uh, what the heck you know we've tried but yeah we we got a little distracted on doing our election quick cast it was a lot of fun and uh, we think we had a bit of influence on a few people in, in power as well as uh, some of our listeners but we're trying to get everything back onto a regular production process now which is guaranteed to totally destroy it isn't it Dang. Yeah. yeah, it's funny, Grant. Actually, we, we set out to make this one episode 38 just by way of reference, but uh, yeah, those politicians putting an election in the way. And so speaking of some of the developments, Grant, uh, that uh, Will was talking about, particularly with regard to Virgin Blue, uh, we probably should have a little bit, bit of a quick chat about that and we might continue it in the next episode. Yeah, that's right. Virgin Blue have done their media release of their annual report and uh, they've done pretty well. They... Uh, 
basically Virgin Blue managed to make more money by flying passengers from fewer aircraft than Qantas did. Qantas did make a bigger profit thanks to uh, their frequent flyer program and so on. But uh, Qantas have more aircraft, flew more people, but made less money than Virgin Blue did. Interesting, hey? Yeah, really interesting stuff. And uh, actually, we we talked about in that in episode 112 of the Australia Desk on the Airplane Geek Show. And uh, interesting to see the way um, Qantas, I actually think Qantas has done well in a way to uh, diversify their, their earnings. We talk a lot on this show about how Qantas is struggling being a, a more legacy type carrier and how it's you know surrounded on all sides by discount carriers and hybrid discount carriers and this sort of stuff, which really does make it difficult to you know for it to survive. So uh, getting out and doing the you know the the Woolworths uh, discount scheme that it does, which uh, you know you can sign up and get frequent flyer points and you know the credit card schemes and whatever, that's making them a lot of money. And um, you know we we might bag Qantas from time to time, but we certainly don't want to see them disappear from our skies, Grant. So uh, <laughs> no. No way. No, 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 no. It needs a little bit of bagging occasionally just to keep them in line. I mean, you know, they keep saying they're the safest airline, but they have these little incidents every now and again. And, uh, you know, it just, it just pays to, to keep people in check occasionally so they don't wind up sniffing their own exhaust too much, as the phrase goes. But, um, <laughs> yeah, look, more power to Qantas for making a major profit thanks to thinking outside the box. But uh, definitely congratulations to Virgin Blue on uh, a good result and also very exciting news from them about the A330s coming online to initially do Perth to the Eastern Seaboard and maybe international after that. And also their big news about the tie-up with Etihad so that they're able to slot in with uh, Etihad into Asia and Europe and Air New Zealand across the Tasman and Virgin Atlantic, Virgin America, Delta. they're really making a lot of linkages to make them a globe-spanning airline without really requiring the aircraft and people to do it. Yeah, and the other re- really interesting announcement they made there, Grant, was that uh, V Australia is not going to be running to Fiji anymore, nor Johannesburg. Now, they've not been running that route very long at all, and we're only talking a few months as we record this, uh, and they're pulling out of that route already, um, which I found really interesting. Uh, the Fiji route, uh, that's now going to be covered instead by uh, former Pacific Blue 737s. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they're also taking their 777s off the Phuket run. Again, that will be covered by 737s. But yeah, the the Joburg flight, uh, Melbourne to Johannesburg, part of the problem they were having was they it took them three hours longer to get there because they had to follow ETOPS rules, whereas the South African Airways A340s and Qantas 747s could just do the great circle run, uh, the joys of four engines versus two, I guess. <laughs> but uh, yeah, maybe uh, part of me wonders, maybe they set that run up just to cash in on the World Cup. Well, they do love publicity, Virgin, but uh, you know, I would think that's a heck of a, uh, an expensive exit exercise just to get a bit of publicity and, and cash in on the World Cup. I mean, how long the World Cup go for? A couple of weeks and it's all over with, um, you know, I would, I, would yeah. I mean, not that I'm an airline pilot, but I would assume there would be a lot of, uh, you know, route uh, training and uh, and all this sort of stuff, uh, familiarization training, I guess, to, to, to operate a, a new yep. flight and a new route. And it just seems to me to be a, well, you know, an interesting exercise. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, I think, I think it was possibly, let's try this out, see what happens. If we're going to time the trial, let's trial it while the people want to get to Johannesburg and South Africa for the World Cup. And if it doesn't work then, it's not going to work anytime we'll pull out. 
So maybe it was a dip the toe in the water. Mm, no, too hot or too cold. Let's let's leave. And we also heard, uh, speaking of the Fiji route that they're also pulling out of, Grant, uh, you know, we sort of heard from inside uh, the industry a, a little bit that um, they were struggling a bit to crew that run. Um, a lot of their staff were perhaps a little unhappy about operating on the 777 across there. It, it didn't qualify them for enough uh, allowances and, and, and a decent pay rate by comparison to the more long-haul flights. And uh, we, we were sort of hearing, at least anecdotally, that uh, they were having trouble crewing those flights at times. So, um, you know, I guess that, uh, you know, more realistic of them to be putting the uh, 737s on that run. Um, I'm sure they'll be able to fill those aircraft far more uh, effectively and efficiently and mm-hmm. uh, be able to redeploy the uh, 777s uh, back onto the routes they're designed to run on. Yeah, which is Australia to the US and also Australia to Abu Dhabi, thanks to their tie-up with Etihad, where they can use their 777s to supplement the flights coming in from uh, Dubai via Etihad and give them way more coverage, for instance, double daily flights out of Sydney. Yeah, so interesting stuff, folks, and we will cover that uh, in more detail in an upcoming episode. We've uh, got quite a bit of content recorded for some episodes coming up, including another Controller's Corner segment by Ben Ippolito. He's been putting one of those together for us. So for uh, those of you that have been uh, participating on the forum there and throwing all sorts of questions, I'm talking at you, Turb. <laughs> Turb Coriolis. Yes. Uh, uh, every yeah. person for hassling the ATC, guys. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, that is coming up, and, uh, yeah, we're going to do a, a little bit more news because we've been a little bit uh, neglectful, Grant, of uh, – the news and comment shows lately, you know, getting just all had these... so much good stuff to put out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's been an adventure, but uh, I don't know. Was, was there anything else? Um, I can't think. Oh, hang on a minute, I can hear something. Oh, oh, oh! Do I hear Postman Pat? My goodness, it's been so long. I've forgotten what he looks like, Grant. <laughs> well, I've never seen him. I'm sort of trapped in your computer when we record like this. Well, not only that, it's very dark. It's always, you know, very early in the morning when we record this. Yes, well, it's gone midnight, so Postman Pat's a dedicated guy. <laughs> well, there you go. So, listener mail, listener mail. We've had quite a bit of listener mail, and we haven't done some for a while. So, uh, Grant, let's uh, kick it off here. I've got uh, an email here from the UK from Brian Petch otherwise known as Flying Coder on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, he just writes in and says, Hi, gents, can't thank you enough for making the last seven night shifts go quickly and interestingly as I've just listened to all your podcasts back-to-back. Oh, my God, the man's a masochist. (laughs) Yeah, unbelievable. So, you know, I think that deserves a bit of uh, crowd applause, Grant. We've got to pump him up before we have to uh, pay for his psychiatrist bill. You know, we're really yeah, sorry well, about that, Brian. That. We didn't mean to affect you that badly. Yeah. <laughs> well, he is XRAF, so he should be pretty tough. Yeah, that's right. And he says, uh, actually, he's actually sent us this back on the 19th of June. It's been a little while, but he says, uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, now for the next fortnight, I'm going to catch up on all the back issues of Airplane Geeks. So, uh, Oh, wow. That, that That's even harder going than all of ours because there's a lot more of them than ours. Yeah, and there's a lot more, there's a lot more Rob Marks on that program, Grant. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, you know, I've got to appreciate his prioritisation. He did listen to us before then, but, you know, sorry, I'm just channeling Dan Webb there. Excellent. But, uh, uh, yeah, Brian yeah. actually uh, just goes on to say he Grant, that he's a long-distance trucker in Europe. Okay, he says long-distance in European terms anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nothing quite like uh, going from Melbourne to Sydney where in Europe you'd cover seven countries. But, um, yeah, and I look, it's good. We, we have pointed him at everyone else, uh, all the other podcasts we listen to, and he's going to start picking all of them up as well and uh, – Hopefully by now he's gone through quite a number of aviation podcasts. Yep, and of course, uh, don't forget, folks, you can find 
every aviation podcast you could ever dream of at thevoicesinyourhead.com. That's the best site around, and I think that's a pretty good phrase too. And kudos to uh, Stephen Force, a.k.a. Steve Tupper, from the Airspeed podcast, who came up with the concept of Voices in Your Head. And, yeah, definitely kudos to Stu Stevenson for putting the site together. Every time any of us put a new episode out, it ends up in there. So uh, a great central repository of uh, great aviation podcasts. Oh, I think we're in there too, Grant. Oh, I think so. Well, you know, <laughs> you've got to have ones to balance out the other ones. Okay. Know, make, make the others look good. You've got to be listening to mail there, mate. Yep, I do, mate. And this one's also from the UK. And this is from a gentleman who goes by the name of Nasco Tomat, or perhaps Nasco Thomat. I'm sorry, I couldn't really pronounce that properly. But uh, he sent us a postcard via airliners.net, and it's a picture of an F-111 doing a dump and burn with his little writing on it there saying, hi, guys, and thanks very much. And you know what? I think that was a brilliant photo and a great idea to send it to us. Yeah, awesome. And uh, just as an interesting footnote too, Grant, uh, coming up at uh, Williamtown up there at Newcastle uh, on September 18th, uh, just coming up in a couple of weeks from now, uh, will probably be just about the last time the public can see uh, the F-111s doing the dump and burn. They're going to be up mm-hmm. there for an air show at Williamtown. We had made plans to be up there. Unfortunately, uh, I don't know. Well, Grant, you're not going to be able to make it. I'm uh, still... Can you hear the gnashing of my teeth? Yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping to make it, but... Uh, uh, you know, my um, you know my my paying job may get in the way of that. So, damn, <laughs> fingers crossed. But uh, in the event that we don't make it up there to uh, to the air show there at Williamtown, folks, if anybody does and you uh, you know you can get some great audio and uh, to send through to us, uh, that'd be great. Playing crazy down under at gmail dot com, or even just give us a yell and we'll have you on the show and you can talk about how cool it was watching Matt Hall fly around in his uh, Giles aerobatics aircraft and also lead a formation of multiple aircraft types in his P-51. Yeah, our close personal friend Matt Hall. And Grant, uh, we're actually planning to talk to Matt in the very near future just to uh, have a bit of a chat about how the season went. And, That's right. And uh, given it, of course, that we've had some uh, some rather sad news about the uh, Red Bull Air Race in more ways than one of late, uh, we're going to have a bit of a chat to Matt about all those things and that'll be coming up in an upcoming show very shortly. Along with a few other Red Bull races. Yeah. But they love us, Grant. They love us. Oh, well, you yeah, know. You, we, you can't blame them. Well, we have a nice relaxed chat about all things aviation. It's great fun. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Me- meanwhile, let's just stop twisting around so we can pat ourselves on the back here. And uh, more listener mail. More listener mail. This one I've got here is from Jabari Phillips. And he says he was really impressed by the quick casts, the uh, three shows we put out on Australian politics coming up on the election. And uh, he's a first-time voter. He's uh, just crossed the age where he's allowed to vote. And he was quite impressed with them because they helped him uh, frame his vote. They gave him some guidance so that he could vote for someone who would uh, help aviation, apparently. No, that's excellent, mate. And uh, thanks, thanks very much for uh, taking the time to contact us. Now, you know those uh, election quick casts, Grant? They were a bit of an impromptu idea, wasn't it? And uh, yeah. we sort of thought, it, probably a little bit too late into the piece, unfortunately, we sort of thought, you know, uh, you know, well, what about we get some politicians on and talk about their aviation policies? And we almost got Anthony Albanese, the transport minister. Um, yep. Unfortunately, uh, it was a very busy time and he sort of had to, to cancel at the last minute. But uh, we, st- we still hope that we will get him on at some point uh, soon. We did get the man who would become the Deputy Prime Minister if the Coalition winds up winning. It's been uh, how many weeks now? We still don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <coughs> but, uh, isn't it interesting, Grant? I know uh, we, we talked to uh, Warren Truss uh, and at that point they hadn't released a policy. I know the guys over at Flight Podcast also had a bit of a chat to uh, Warren Truss as well and not long after uh, those two interviews um, lo and behold, right on the, the eve of the election, the uh, Liberal National Coalition actually released a policy. So I think uh, the new media sphere, Grant, we can uh, 
claim a bit of credit for that. Oh, well. Hey, well, well, even if we can't, I'm going to anyway. Yeah, let's, let's try it. <laughs> yeah, it works for me. So, Steve, are there any more letters in the mailbag today? Yes, mate. And uh, one more email that came in uh, back in mid-August from Drew. Uh, Drew, you didn't leave your surname, mate, so we're not sure who you are, but I'm sure you know who you are. And uh, he said, hi, fellas, I've uh, recently found your podcast via the forums on downwind.com.au. Good work. Thanks very much for saying so, mate. Yeah, Great podcast cool. and very informative. Liking the RA and GA sections. Well, yeah, we'd like to be including more RA and GA news as we go along. But, uh, we we're working on it. We do struggle with that a little bit, but I'm glad you you're finding it interesting. Uh, he said he's just taken it upon himself to get his uh, GFPT and his PPL flying out of Moorabbin, by the way. Uh, that's uh, is- For those who don't know, that's General Flying Proficiency Test, which allows you to go into the training area and carry one person with you. And then the uh, PPL is, of course, the private pilot license. Or if you're really old like me, it's actually a restricted private pilot's license, as it used to be known. Yeah, I remember those days too. I was doing some early flying lessons back in those days. <laughs> yeah. Here's another one, Greg. He's uh, saying, uh, Drew, he's, you know, He's, he's taken it upon himself to download all of our podcasts and listen to them in order. Oh, so, my God. So it'll be a few. Uh, now he sent this on August 14th, mate. So uh, he said it'll be a few weeks before he gets to the current news. Uh, he'd like well, to hear a bit more on GA and flight training in Australia, but he do real, does realise that it's probably one of the harder areas to cover due to the amount of available content. Well, yeah, we, we're sort of working on a few angles there, and we hope to uh, to get some more of that stuff in there. It's, it's definitely a topic we want to have more of in the show, and we're working on it. We... Uh, a future show coming up is going to have a whole lot of interviews we had with people flying light aircraft and so on, and uh, we're looking forward to putting that one out. Yeah, and I actually wrote back to Drew and uh, you know gave him a bit of, bit of encouragement to uh, keep up with his training. It turns out he's flying with a uh, an operator there called TriStar Aviation, which is uh, one of the smaller operators mm. there. But they've got quite a neat little fleet there, Grant, at Moorabbin Airport. No, that's cool. It's good to good to find another person who's uh, learning how to fly. It's always a wonderful thing. Yep, and yet another person. He, he just goes on to say here, Grant, uh, that he's uh, in two minds regarding GA or RA, mainly on a financial basis. And uh, you know, isn't that um, interesting? That um, that's just such a common story, isn't it, Grant? That you know, a lot, of, a lot of people are starting to, to look at RA now that the aircraft are so much better than they used to be, you know, a decade ago, uh, oh, and they're yeah, cheaper look, to fly. Like a, a new RA aircraft is so much more fun than an old GA aircraft from the old days, like the Cessna 150 and 152 that I used to uh, fly in. Oh, man, they're, they're just light years ahead in, the, in some of the RA aircraft. But uh, the big thing is when, when I can do aerobatics under an RA license, mate, I'm so there. Yep. And the excellent thing is here that Drew is also saying that uh, the next time he goes flying in uh, mid-September, he says uh, frequency again dictated by finances. <laughs> we understand totally, Yeah, we mate. know that feeling. Yep. <laughs> uh, he's uh, going to post another uh, an update in Downwind on the forums there for us just to let us know how he's going. And uh, he's hoping that he can set up a microphone rig to uh, record the audio get some cockpit oh, audio awesome. so uh, that's awesome mate now Drew uh, I've, I've actually sent him a, a, a couple of little pointers on how he might do that but uh, Drew uh, feel, please uh, feel free to contact us again if you need any advice on that uh, Grant's got a uh, quite a neat little setup that he takes with him to grab cockpit audio with and uh, <laughs> yes. as you'll hear it works fr- even doing aerobatics yeah that's yeah, yeah we can vouch for that it does and um, also uh, of course as you'll hear at the end of the show uh, Damien Rose is uh, quite adept at recording cockpit audio so uh, there's a, a quite a number of resources there you can use if you uh, need some help setting that up, mate, and we'd certainly encourage any of our other listeners to uh, send us in cockpit audio. And it doesn't only have to be from Australia either, folks. If you uh, you know come across some interesting audio that you'd like to send us from uh, from anywhere else on the planet, uh, but quite a following around the world now, Grant. Mm-hmm. We? It's really encouraging to hear. So uh, you know we we would like to hear from everybody and and anybody from wherever you are. So uh, thanks for writing in, Grant. I think uh, we'll uh, we'll just uh, leave the listener mail there for this week. We just want to move on to shout outs before we round this one out. Yeah, that's right. We've got a one really important shout. 
out at the moment, and that's just recently Captain Chris from the Plain Madness podcast, who uh, was putting out some really cool podcasts quite a while ago and experimenting with a bit of video that he was shooting from a uh, remote-controlled aircraft he was flying around. That was really kind of cool. Well, he's back, and uh, he's releasing Plain Madness 2.0, as he's calling it. It's the, uh, the new look Plain Madness podcast. He, he pod faded for a while. Uh, he had his uh, first episode out in uh, version two of the podcast explains why that happened. And it's just really great to have you back, mate. I really enjoyed listening to your podcast way back. And it's wonderful that you're back. It's It's been really good, actually. The the um, pilot cast has come back and now Plain Madness is back. And Joe, Joe Dion, Dion yep. is occasionally putting out one or two. It's really good. Joe Dion stuff is excellent, folks. So if you go back and listen to some of Joe Dion's... Uh, That's Fly With Me. Fly with me that's right I just name just escaped me there for a second but uh, <laughs> uh, some of the ones that he did back in the earlier iterations of his uh, podcast where he's talking about his military flying days and um, particularly the episode that sticks in my mind is uh, the one where he's talking about uh, a rather nasty flight instructor he had at the Air Force Academy there and uh, <laughs> I don't even remember yeah. that one Grant and how he ended up getting his own back many years later on that uh, that particularly nasty individual it's quite entertaining so uh, yeah yep. great to see all these uh, these you know guys that were sort of pioneers in the uh, the aviation podcasting game that, you know, sort of pod-faded a little. It's great to see them coming back, mate. So I think uh, we'll Heck just yeah. crank the studio audience up there again. Woo-hoo. There we go. Silence, studio audience. Oh, they did. They Man, did. do you feel like you've got the power? Oh, yes, I control the buttons on this sound rig, Grant. Anyway, well, I think that just about wraps it up for this week, folks. Thanks very much for joining us. So We certainly hoped you enjoyed it. Don't forget you can also hear us with our Australia Desk Report on the Airplane Geek Show. That's at airplanegeeks.com. And, Grant, somewhere else as well. Yes, that's right. We're now also appearing every other week or so on Flight Time Radio. So if you go to flighttimeradio.com, you can uh, check out the site, subscribe to their podcast, and even uh, find the links to listen live when they broadcast every Saturday morning and we're doing a little show called Flying Down Under where we give you a bit of an overview of what it's like to fly in Australia, the history of aviation in Australia, some of the warbird activities. Uh, we're also talking GA, RA and things like that. Yeah, but that comes out in, in podcast form, of course, but uh, for our listeners in Florida, it also comes out on uh, WBOB there in Jacksonville, Florida, which I think grand is 1530 AM. That's right. And apparently they're on an, another one or two radio stations as well. So we've got to track down those details. And Flightline Internet radio too mate oh yeah 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 they're on there as well by so. hook or by crook we're going to get on that uh, flight line radio <laughs> <laughs> yes the Australian forces are reaching out into the internet and I think Grant that's just about everything we can think of for this uh, rather long episode of Playing Crazy Down Under don't forget folks if you're uh, cruising around the iTunes store and uh, you come across Playing Crazy Down Under there we'd really appreciate a review or two um, you know good or bad but preferably good <laughs> we respond better to good yes we do we like good <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah that really helps us uh, get, get our ranking up a bit uh, if you can uh, leave some feedback there, it lets iTunes know that uh, people are listening to us. Our downloads uh, have uh, crept up a little lately, which is uh, very encouraging to see. Uh, Grant and I, you know, work. this is actually becoming a bit of a full-time job, isn't it, mate? Yeah, well, you know, I'm sitting there at my day job going, oh, I would rather be working on the website and putting out more press releases and editing shows and, oh, man, I call it the call of the wild. <laughs> thanks to Anthony Simmons, Damien Rose. A huge thanks also to Will Horton for taking the time to join us actually twice during the recording of this show and uh, we, we really appreciate that because uh, we did have a lot of technical difficulties so uh, we're really hoping that uh, Will will come back and uh, we haven't scared him off too much and he'll come back and visit us again soon but until then just remember
remember when you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts, just remember this. You're never alone with a rubber duck. And it's what's down under the counts. Cheers, folks. (laughs) You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.planecrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plainecrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. Kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Hello Playing Crazy Down Under listeners, Damien Rose here. Just wanted to share some cockpit audio that I was able to record last night on my second night nav for my night VFR rating. I just departed north out of Gundawindi and um, after doing my checks went over to the Brisbane Centre frequency where we listened to various radio transmissions, mostly from IFR aircraft. And then in amongst it all we heard a pan call, well the, the air traffic controller confirming with a pilot that he indeed made a pan call. Unfortunately we couldn't hear what the pilot was saying because he was a military pilot. The aircraft designated that you'll hear is Sabre 2 and from subsequent transmissions we identified that the aircraft was in fact an F-111 that it appears had some difficulty whilst doing some low level air work. So enough of my ramblings, here's the recording. So with your traffic... 172 Tango Whiskey Bravo departed Gundawindi time 01, uh, tracking 356 for Tara at 4500 Gundawindi traffic. Ascent 79, stand by. Ascent 79, uh, you are identified very far level. I think 7600 Qantas, Ascent 79, requesting cruise amended flight level 370. Qantas uh, 1079, uh, clearance. Track uh, Mount Isaac, planned route to Brisbane. Intron climb, amended flight level, uh, position, uh, level 280, score 4574. Uh, track Mount Isaac and uh, Isaac flight, planned route to flight level 280, score 4574, Qantas 1079. Brisbane, sir, covered 62 miles to the west of the Brisbane. Confirm, over to Roger, you've just broken on uh, your transmission from your de- declaration of the pan. Just go ahead your details, sir. Over to Copy Japan, suspected bird strike. Uh, 
No, put it right, but traffic from your presentation, tracking direct ambly at of a 170. You can expect airways clearance on that track. Scorecard in. Over to Brisbane Centre identified a verified level and confirm uh, if you have any special requirements for your approach in that correction landing into Ambly and you expect to make a normal approach and landing. I wish we could hear him. Yeah, I reckon. Over to Brisbane Tech copied. Uh, Roger, stand by for uh, code.